and he's just like, well, I can't read your mind. That's mysterious. It's like, why are you trying to read her mind? You just met this woman. There's no yeah, like, to be doing that. Get out of there, <laughs> fucking weirdo. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast, where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Leah Williams, a writer at Marvel, known for her work at the moment on X-Men, The Trial of Magneto, and previously on X-Factor with David Balzayan. Leah, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. I know you're a busy gal, but I always like a chance to talk to the people who are working on these characters right now because it's very theoretical when my guests and I are talking and it's less theoretical when you're in the room. Yeah. So it's always a treat. Every interview I've ever heard with you, you're a pretty personable, fun interview. So I was excited to get you (laughs) on the show. We are here today to talk about Ilyana Rasputina, Magic, a character I have loved since I was a small child. And people have constantly been asking me, when is the Magic episode? When is the Magic episode? When is the Magic episode? This is episode 56. So it's been some time. But first of all, I can't do all the heavy hitters right out the gate. At this point, after the extravaganza with Sarah Sentry on Candy Southern was a big hit, I feel like now I can kind of get away with whatever character. But I was worried that once we got down to like, you know, Amelia Vote and Cyber, people were going to stop tuning in. So oh, yeah, you want to make them wait for it. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make them wait. All the Amelia Vote fans are now screaming. I love Amelia Vote. No, no disrespect intended to her. The other reason was there are a couple characters that I have set aside for specific creators who I would love to talk to about them. And the first Leah Williams comic I ever read was the What If Magic story that you did with Felipe Andrade, which I absolutely loved. I think it's one of the best treatments of this character I've ever read. Thank you. It's one of my favorite projects that I've ever worked on. Actually, the tattoo on my arm, I don't know if you can... Where's the mm-hmm. that, yeah. If you can see that, it's basically like the full story of what if magic. Wow. Like the statue right here. Right. Staff, the beach, and then the end when the universe is broken. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really, really love that. So how did that come about, that one shot? So my editor, Annalise Visa. Friend of the pod. Love her. Just one of my favorite people on the planet. She's brilliant and low-key the funniest person at marvel like she's so so fucking funny she did the uh cypher episode with me and it was very very funny we had a great time so she reached out to me and it was one of the very first things that she had ever edited so she sent me like this you know short essay on her idea and why she was reaching out to me and why she thought that this character would be good for this project and why she thought I would be, you know, the person to write it, like just very, very much like a college essay, you know, Mm -hmm. it was funny though, because by the moment I got to, I think the second paragraph where she was telling me her idea, I was like, oh my God, yes, it's brilliant. And her idea is what if magic was Sorcerer Supreme? And like, I was ride or die from that moment on. And I replied to her like, yes, absolutely. That's brilliant. I wish this could be a whole graphic novel. I have so much to say about this. So we, 
uh, started working on it together. And it was just one of those things where, I mean, like you're, you're a creative, a lot of people listening to this are going to be creatives too. So, you know, that feeling when a particular project feels special, like you can Mm -hmm. tell there's a difference and it's just kind of like an exceptional kismet alchemy type thing where all the pieces are working, where it just feels special the whole time that you're toiling on it. And we like really, really wrenched on it to make it perfect. Every single detail, every single line we were, and and I say we, like me, Annalise, Chris, who did colors and Philippe Andrade doing the art, like we were all in it. We were all super invested. Yeah. It's just still one of my favorite projects to this day. For me, it really captured something about the character that I think had been lost a little bit since her return, which was the edge Claremont brought to that original miniseries, the way that her story really is about an abused child. There are questions about that later that we'll get to, and I'm sure we'll get to it more in depth as a subject generally, but you know, that's always been very central to my reading of the character. And it was nice to see that explored in a way that was a little deeper, obviously in this alternate context, but sometimes a what if or an AU is the best way to get at things about a character. I mean, I'm a lifelong Betsy Braddock head and I quite liked what you did with her in Extremis in a similar sense, because you can talk about Betsy's body dysmorphic problems in an AU perhaps more easily than you can in the 616 world where she doesn't talk about that stuff. Yeah, exactly. And of course, Age of Apocalypse, I guess, in the 90s was the way to do that for a lot of characters. And that's why we all still go back to it over and over again. Yeah. What I'd love to talk about first before we get into Ilyana herself is you and your journey to the X-Men and how you came to love this franchise. Obviously, your connection to it is now very personal as it is something that you work on professionally. But in terms of your journey to loving these characters in this world and to Ilyana specifically, once it naturally makes sense to get there. So I grew up in Mississippi and I did not grow up around comics. I didn't have access to comics until I was in college, actually. So my first introduction to the X-Men as a property was um, X-Men Evolution, the Mm -hmm. cartoon. And I still have a crush on goth rogue to this day. Um, (laughs) I think a lot of people do. So I didn't get into comics until I was in college. And I started rooming with this girl who's super into DC comics you know, I knew nothing about them. So I was looking at her comic collection in her bedroom, like, what is that? Aren't those for boys? And this Mm -hmm. girl like just gets up, walks out, goes to a different bookshelf, comes back and she like slaps down Watchmen on my desk and just walks back (laughs) out. And that was my introduction to comics for her. She's still one of my best friends to this day. And for her, that was her single strongest argument for why I was an idiot. And in thinking that like, you know, comics are a boy thing or whatever. And she was right. And then after that, I started working in a comic book shop. That was my It's been a singular path ever since. Been really focused on comics, really passionate about them, and it became my professional life in Mm -hmm. more than one way. So that's where I really got into X-Men comics. And I kind of came at it sideways. Like what I knew is that X-Men continuity is like really... (laughs) <laughs> a, di- a difficult <laughs> undertaking. That's why I started this show. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's 
super inaccessible. Yeah. So the way that I was coming at it was I was looking at like, okay, so what kind of peripheral um, X-Men series have the least amount of issues that I can like catch up with the soonest. So that was like X-Factor and New Mutants Mm -hmm. and Excalibur. So that's where I started. And that's still like what I love most now. Excalibur and New Mutants and X-Factor is kind of my my nostalgia center um, for this stuff. So that's where I first met Ileana. Right. Like I was reading things chronologically as I could, as we had them in the shop, I would just like take it out of the bag and board and read at the counter. That's really my, my defining introduction to a lot of the like original creators of the X-Men and also, um, you know, just so many iconic characters. So I started early because my dad's a collector. He's like specifically an X-Men collector. So I had this very robust collect. He's actually coming on the show for Thanksgiving, which is going to be funny. We're going to talk about Sauron because he loves Sauron. Oh, who doesn't? Sauron's great. He stopped reading around 1996. And I was like, there's not that much for you to read to catch up if you want to catch up. Like, I'll give you a list. And he was like, great. I also, though, when I was a kid... Excalibur was my road in. I loved that book. The tone of it was just like, it was different from anything else that there was, right? I got into New Mutants a little later. When I was 12 was the first time they collected Inferno in trade. And Madeline Pryor is my deep and abiding obsession. She's the character I think about when I wake up and think about when I'm falling asleep at night. So I'm very excited for January's issue of New Mutants and for whatever is to come at the end of Zeb's run on Hellions. Inferno was a thing I should not have read at 12 years old, but I did, and it sort of burned itself indelibly into my head. At Comic-Con a couple weeks ago, I had Chris Claremont sign my big new omnibus. Oh, incredible. And then we argued for about 45 minutes in a friendly way, but you know, that's sort of of his... Yeah, he does that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I told him about some things he should read that are new. Oh, yeah. We'll revisit next year. He was like, okay. And I was like, we'll make this like a yearly. We went for literally like 45 minutes and I kept apologizing to people in the line and they were like, no, 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 please keep going. (laughs) But anyway, so I was really drawn also though simultaneously to Ilyana because I read her story's end before I read its beginning, right? And that was an interesting path because I read that and I was 12 and I didn't know a comic book could make me cry and like it did which was this crazy experience to have. But then also, in all of the trading cards that were coming out in the 90s, Magic was this sort of mysterious character because she was dead. The trading cards would have, like, they'd be arranged into pages when you put them in their little sleeves. There would be a page of all the dead characters. And it was this awesome girl with a lightsaber and, like, a metal arm. And I was like, who is this? I need to know more. And I've always loved witchy stuff and fantasy. So she was just always a really compelling character to me. I went back because Inferno is so distressing. I mean, it's beautiful, but reading her story through to the end there is so distressing that I was like, I need to know everything about this character. Because I was like, they're going to bring her back. There's no way they're not going to bring her back. And then she was dead still for like another 10 years or something. (laughs) (laughs) But now she's back and bigger than ever. Oh, yeah. I don't think there's another character who's had a more a faster, more meteoric rise than Ileana. It's crazy. It's insane. Yeah. Which is part of why so many people have been clamoring for an episode because her history is confusing. And so many people love this character now who are newer readers and they're like, I tried to go back and I don't understand what happened. I'm like, don't worry, we'll get there. I'm on it. You're going to be fine by the end of this episode. What was your initial connection to that character specifically when you were reading New Mutants? 
I took notes on this actually. <laughs> I love notes. Notes are great. Yeah. I, in my like Wanda notebook, no less, because if mm. I use the notebook for the other project I'm working on, that would be full of spoilers. Mm. Okay. So it was new mutants issue 21, which came out like around 83, 85. I think this was maybe my very first encounter with Ileana. It's like a party at the Xavier mansion and with the new mutants who are, you know, feral and Danny (laughs) is injured. She's in a wheelchair. Ileana is standing over her and there's just this raucous party going on behind them. And then Danny is looking up at Ileana and she's like, do you think this is what Xavier had in mind when he said you could invite a few people over? And then Ileana is just looking down at her like, sure. I'm like, okay, I get it. I like this vibe. Like, who who is this chick? She's amazing. Yeah, she's the mischievous one. In one word, you know, she had me hooked. Like, the confidence, the vibe, it's, it's fantastic. Once I read more, I was drawn to her both for the, you know, obviously, like, the cool demon sorceress stuff is awesome, but also the point of view that she brings to the team. It's really weird to read the New Mutant stuff from before she's brought in, which I did recently because we did a Karma episode, and so I went back to the beginning because Karma's only in the beginning and then comes back eventually. But the dynamic of the team before Ilyana is on the team feels really like a very different book. Yeah. Probably because in in part because it dovetails somewhat with Sienkiewicz coming on the book because that changes the tone considerably, obviously. But it's also just that she adds something really particular. And I think that that's why so many writers wanted to bring her back, why there are so many ways in the time that she was dead that she does come back. You get the Truth or Death miniseries, you get the evil version of her from Exiles, you get moments where a writer clearly wanted to play with Ilyana Rasputina but could not because she was dead and so found a way around it. Because I think if you grew up with this character in particular, like... It's like how a lot of guys, and women too, actually, but, you know, male writers have often said that Kitty Pride was like their first crush or whatever, right? And so that's a character that's always kind of going to come back because she lives so profoundly in like the back of their brain. I think Ilyana is like that too, not quite in the same way, but she was sort of one of the first like bad girls that I got to really revel in because she was bad. I mean, she was allowed to be bad. It was her role in the story. Like, Rain was the good girl who was upset that there were demons and magic and witchcraft happening. And Ilyana was the person who said, listen, sometimes you got to summon a demon or do some witchcraft because the world's a shitty place, kid, and that's not my fault. There was something unapologetic about her that I found really refreshing. Yeah, totally. Like, her brashness, her bluntness, but also the fact that this exterior is protecting just a massive heart. She cares. Even even when it's hard, she keeps caring. It just makes her such a fascinating character because she's like a, a patchwork quilt of a bunch of different qualities. And at the same time, it all works so perfectly. Like this is a fully realized human being in the form of a character. Yeah. There's a depth to her that, I mean, I think all of Claremont's characters, his favorites in particular, are very lived in. Yeah. There's an interiority that we lose somewhat now with the loss of the thought bubble, which is one of my favorite devices in classic comics that we don't really get to use much anymore. I have found that your writing, I think, 
I have referred to you, I think, on the show, actually, as like the most Claremontian of the current crew, because I do think that there is there's a compression to your stories that I think is similar to his. Like a lot happens. It's a dense issue. I like a dense issue. Also, though, as we've seen in trial with a lot of Wanda's thought processes or in X Factor 4 with Polaris, I like the way that you use internal monologue in the way that those thought bubbles used to do. It's part of why fans, I think, respond really profoundly to the more personal plots you do, because I think that we get to see more of what's under the surface of the iceberg. For What If Magic, and I guess for any time you've gotten to write this character, what was your thought process in terms of like, who is this person? How do I get into her head? How do I put that on the page? So for What If Magic in particular, it was really important to me to kind of refer back to that four issue magic mini series um, Mm -hmm. written by Chris Claremont, edited by uh, Louise Simonson, because What If Magic basically picks up right after that. Like the divergence in, in paths is like, it starts after the magic miniseries ends and What If Magic picks up with what if she didn't go to Xavier's mansion. Right. Revisiting that miniseries as an adult and having completely different experiences under my belt than the first time when I read it at like 19 or something uh, and being able to recognize the like genuine trauma and abuse in there was heady and and I I've never really looked at her the same way since. It's it's just one of the reasons why I love her so much. You know, when you're looking at that original mini series and recognizing the authenticity to what she's saying about her abuser and the way that he groomed her. About Belasco. Yeah, about Belasco. Like on the second page of the first issue of the magic mini series, she's a child. She's still like eight years old and she's rationalizing what he's doing mm-hmm. and trying to like make herself feel better about it by telling herself he won't do anything bad to me. He loves me. He loves me. He's being kind to me. It hurts. It hurts so much. It was wild to me to go back and read that mini when I was young, because like I said, I read Inferno first. So the first time I encountered Ileana's backstory, it was when the New Mutants have followed her into limbo because her powers are kind of on the fritz and she's confronted by Sim. And then they dart into the disc and they come out because limbo is all topsy-turvy with time it's actually a scene from the mini but i didn't know that at the time but the scene where sim you know is really violently abusive to her and then drags her off unconscious and the implication that louis simonson makes pretty strongly in the inferno issue is that he is about to abuse her in other ways because she won't let rain see it and That really struck me when I was 12 because I was old enough to understand what was being implied and I couldn't believe that that was in a comic book, first of all. I mean, child sex abuse is like not something you see in a lot of superhero comics, at least not handled in a... You would eventually see it, things like that, more often in like the 90s and aughts in sort of a lascivious way. Yeah, in like the shock value way. Yeah. The way that it's told in in Ileana's origin story is not for shock value. No. The truth is there for anybody who needs it, but it's also not in your face enough to be, you know, conflated for shock value. You never see it, which I think is really important. It's not depicted. We're experiencing it from how it affects Ileana, from how it changes her thought patterns and changes her life. 
I reread the original mini before we recorded because I just wanted to refresh. And I did too. I, I mean, it's it's also so good that like I never mind a revisit, but but it is a rough read. It's a lot like Days of Future Past that way, actually, where it's just like because he's in this alternate timeline, Claremont feels like he can do really horrible things to the characters and to you, the reader. And he knows like we're going to fix it at the end, sort of. So it's fine. Like it still happened to these versions of the characters, but the versions that we know are, are okay. And her narration throughout is so strong. She was still a pretty new character at the time. And it's remarkable how fully formed she is already in that mini But I was struck by the tactile language used with Belasco throughout, which I had kind of forgotten about, like how specific it is that she longs for like his touch while also hating it. You know, I remembered her saying that she was consort to a demon, which is a really quick aside. Yeah, that was in in like half my lifetime spent on Earth and half in hell where I was consort to a devil. I am Ileana Rasputina, humanity savior or the means of its eternal damnation. Yes, that's it. Oh. <laughs> like, shit goes hard. Yeah. And I will say, like, that is why I have a lot of trouble with the character of Sim when he's used um, for comedy. I was just thinking the same thing. Like, when they're kind of, you know, lampooning his abuse and turning it into a punchline, it doesn't register as authentic as it does when he's acting in his truly monstrous nature. I mean, I think of him as kind of like a manifestation of sexual abuse as a demon. And so it's very weird to me when he pops up in a latter day comic as just sort of like a mook. I mean, I think the fact that the story right after the mini in New Mutants, I want to say 14, I'm not great with numbers. So if you're listening and I'm wrong, don't correct me. (laughs) The moment where she brings him to heel and says, you serve me now because I have conquered Limbo. The way that she then sort of tries to employ him as a minion, I've always found very interesting in the Claremont and then Simonson stuff, in the Simonson stuff by then because of the Magus, he's rebelled against her and yada yada. But particularly having read the mini and having read Inferno, where we see the abuse more explicitly and it's more explicitly like told to us what's about to happen because again, she won't let Rain see because she knows that Rain can't handle that. Then there's also, though, the scene up in New York when she's fully gone silver dark child and Sim beats her nearly to death in like a very visceral sequence. She's rescued by Pyotr and then ultimately rescues herself. But so when you see them now sometimes in like, you know, I'm thinking like Ex Infernus or other stories where like, and I, it's not that I have a problem with the stories themselves. It's just I always feel like there's a really complicated power dynamic going on whenever those two characters are in the same room. And I just feel like it needs to be handled with care, you know? And we don't see Belasco that often. Like, that's less commonplace. But Sim is someone who just shows up to, like, be a funny bad guy. And it's like, this bad guy's not really funny to me anyway. I think he's a great character who could be really scary if taken seriously. I have a lot of thoughts about that. I think that, too. I think that his original design may be you know, because it is cartoony, so distinctive and cartoony, gargoyle-esque. And the Dave Sim joke that, you know, is also there. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Like (laughs) he, the visual language becomes a shorthand for, you know, over the top Mm -hmm. villainery without taking into consideration who this character actually is and what he's supposed to represent. Yeah, like he's not just a demon, like he's in Strange Academy now and it's like, this is my daughter. And I'm like, ooh, that's loaded. It goes to show that what Ilyana brought to the table in 
particularly New Mutants, which was a book that was geared toward young people more so than any of them. Like all Marvel comics at the time were pretty geared toward young people as the target audience. But New Mutants is the book that explicitly is like, here's the book about the kids. Most of those characters have baggage that they're dealing with. I mean, I think part of the reason he writes Karma out really quickly is that she's too mature and has been through a little too much for the others to relate to her. She feels a lot older than them. But Ileana, by nature of her presence, just really brings a seriousness and also a maturity, even when she is not mature herself, to the subject matter. What's interesting to me is the way that she was forced to grow up too fast and her presence makes everyone around her kind of start to grow up too fast, you know? because they can't help but be engaged in limbo, in everything that's going on with her. Kitty is constantly getting, like, given the armor and the soul sword by accident. It's almost like being around this person who isn't processing this stuff in a healthy way, it starts to affect the people around her in these physical, sort of mystical ways that I think are interesting. And part of what I liked about What If, your story, was the way that it showed how that might have turned out differently if she had had a more supportive environment. Because Charles Xavier, for all his good qualities, I don't think has ever been particularly good at... There is not one thing that qualifies that man to teach. <laughs> not one degree, nothing. He is not qualified to be in charge of children whatsoever. He really isn't. And it's interesting that I mean, I think New Mutants really hits its stride as a book when Magneto takes over the school. His relationship with Ileana was always the most interesting one to me because it felt like he got her in a way that Charles didn't and didn't want to. Well, of course he does. It's symmetrical trauma. It's pain, you know, like calls to like. And I see in you the same kind of demons I have in me. Yeah. Claremont said in a Reddit AMA recently that he viewed those two characters as parallel because Magneto was a good man who had felt driven to do evil things. And Ilyana is someone who is evil, who is like corrupted in this way by this force, but really wants to do good things. And that they're both sort of trying to meet each other in the middle of like, let's be good people, let's be functional. And neither quite can get there. I don't think it's a coincidence that Inferno, where Ileana sacrifices herself, is also the story where Magneto departs the New Mutants. I think that in order for the book to continue, you can't have just one of them. Like, you need to kind of yeah. take both of them off the page. Yeah. Because they balance each other out, though. I always think of in Follow the Mutants, one of my favorite Ileana moments is when she, like, holds the gun to the animator's head and is like, I'm going to fucking kill you because you killed Doug. They're all like, Ilyana, you can't do that. And she's like, all right, fine. And just throws him to the demons of limbo instead. And they're all like, that's not better. And then they all get home. And when Magneto finds out and he's so furious with them, she flips out. She fully like satyrs out in that moment, like dark child hoof vibes, which I, I do, I will say, I really miss specifically the silver armor aesthetic thing that she used to have. I thought it was so cool that it would like sort of manifest around her. I think that her outfit now is really distinctive and has helped with her popularity because it's so striking. And I love the little Kirby hat, like the horns popping out. Mm -hmm. But I do miss that like half armored weird thing because it, to me, it had such a physical it was like form and content, right? It was like, this is the struggle that's happening inside her and you can see it yeah, visually. Yeah, and it still occasionally gets used in that same sense. 
I liked an Empire X-Men when it popped up for a second. Yeah, I did that. I wrote that part because it's like, you know, magic hulking out kind of. It's it's when she's acting. The silver armor pops up. I exactly. screamed. I was like, that's my favorite look for her. You I, know? I love it. Yeah. And I love this side of her because it's what she hates most about herself and what she's constantly trying to compartmentalize and not acknowledge. But there are times like when her back's against the wall and she has to draw from that power reserve and, you know, fully embody the part of herself that she hates the most in order to be empowered. And I find something just so chilling and beautiful about that, about her character and, you know, having that inside her, the dark child. I fully was obsessed with I think one of the things that most captured me in Inferno when I was reading it when I was young was the progressive transformation. She starts Inferno in the full silver suit of armor with the hooves and the tail and the horns. Like, that's happening. At this point, she's pretty far gone. But then when Nastir tempts her and she accepts the power and becomes, like, full-on red, dark child, scary demon, that was, like, astounding to me. But I liked that... That was only like the intermediary stage. The final stage of the Dark Child is the silver armor has covered me entirely now. You can't see an inch of me. I am nothing but this armor that has no clasps. It has no, like there's no way to take this off, right? It doesn't even have like segments to it the way that her brother's body looks like it does when he gets into his steel form. It's just like a solid piece of metal that's coating her entire body. There's something very defiant about that. I mean, she takes that form when she's fighting Sim in New York. Yeah, and I think that there's something. So the three examples that come to mind, we've got Ileana, we have um, Betsy Braddock when she's like looking at her idealized version of herself. Mm -hmm. And turns into metal in the annual. She turns into metal. And then in New X-Men, after Genosha is destroyed and Emma Frost is walking out with the body of Negasonic Teenage Warhead in her arms, she becomes becomes diamond. diamond. So there's a like really interesting conversation to be had about the role that trauma plays in, you know, ex-women's lives and how they physically transform into something armored, into something untouchable, so that their their vulnerabilities are are hidden behind literal like shields and armors. Mm-hmm. Well, not long after that annual, Betsy, not to take this to a place of Betsy, but I always do. Not long after that annual, Betsy gets that armor that she wears yep. in the outback because clearly it struck a chord with her. It's her idealized self. It's yeah. how she's comfortable. Yeah. I don't want to wear this silk chiffon number that I've been walking around in. It's beautiful, but I need to be strong. Exactly. With Emma, the fact that that secondary mutation is a spontaneous response to the nuclear attack, it's sort of like her body just refused. Like, you can't destroy me. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And this is why I connect so viscerally with these characters because they're taking sources of trauma and coming out the other side of it stronger. Like, no, you cannot destroy me. I am going to become something else entirely, something. Polaris, of course, is a character who also spins out of Genosha in really interesting ways. Yeah, absolutely. I've talked a lot on this show about how Polaris got that code name from Eric the Red when she was brainwashed. Like Polaris is constantly taking things. Betsy does this too. I think Polaris and Betsy have a lot in common as characters. You know, Mojo names Psylocke. Eric the Red names Polaris. There's this way that they take things that are put on them and claim them as powerful. And I think Ilyana is also a character who does that. She 
has been resisting the encroaching armor for years in New Mutants, from when it first started in the Demon Bear story to once it's fully covering her almost in Inferno before, you know, she embraces the Dark Child. But when she fully becomes the Dark Child in that moment facing Sim, it is a source of power. She lets it cover her entire body. She's like, oh, actually, this will keep you out. I embrace that wholeheartedly. And she only regrets it when Pyotr sees her and she can't tolerate Pyotr seeing her as a demon. That's always been the one thing that she doesn't want. Yeah. Which is interesting in light of where their story goes in the utopia era where she wants him to feel corruption to understand her, which is very different from their relationship previously. What did you think about her coming back and all of the stuff with her soul and all of that in the 21st century. Do you know what Rumspringa is? Yes, I do. That's what I felt about it. <laughs> <laughs> For listeners, if you don't, that's when before they come of age or as they're coming of age, I guess, Amish kids get to have like one wild jaunt through the wider world. And then they get to decide if they want to dedicate themselves to the religion or if they want to leave the society. I think that Ilyana, particularly when she comes back, it felt like there were a lot of conflicting approaches to how to write her in that initial period. I think that Claremont and Simonson were very aligned because, as you noted, Simonson edited that original miniseries. And then when she took over the book, I think that her work with Ilyana is some of her strongest work on that title. I think those Inferno yeah. issues are some of the best issues of New Mutants. And I think in particular that they're so good because I do think that having a woman write the character for those scenes where she's talking about that stuff added a, a layer to it that was not necessarily, it's not that it wasn't there at all when Claremont wrote it, but I think that it's always good to have a different yeah, point Louise of view. Yeah, Louise was still editing Chris um, yeah, exactly. when he was writing it. So the authenticity is still there very much informed by by Louise. Yeah, but when it's her own script, I do really feel like the almost desperate fear and anger of it is really powerful in those Inferno issues. When she came back, I love Zeb Wells's take on her in New Mutants. That's one of my yeah. favorite comics ever, really, is that 20 issues that Zeb did on New Mutants. I love the way that she and Karma are juxtaposed as sort of like the dark and the light of the team because it was nice to see Karma get any kind of spotlight, which is rare for her as a character, but also because they had never really interacted very much in the original material because Ilyana joins the team after she leaves. Yeah. You know, it was nice to see that. But also, I really felt drawn to Zeb's approach to Ilyana, who in that story still does not have her soul, but I thought felt very authentically herself. It was an Ilyana unburdened by the moral questions that had haunted her so much in the Claremont and Simonson runs, but it was very much her. I did feel like after that run, and at the end of that run, she gets her soul back, theoretically, because she gets the bloodstones and all of that stuff. So it's like, okay. And this is what people ask me all the time. They're like, did she? I'm like, I don't, here's the thing. Don't worry too much about it. I think the answer is yes. But then she does do all of the really wacky stuff with Colossus and the Juggernaut and all of that, which that I... You know, I, I like the writers who were on the book at that time. I just, to me, it felt a little off because I do think that preserving her innocence 
to him is something that's always been really important to her. There's that great issue where she thinks she summoned his ghost to fight Baba Yaga back uh, during the Outback period. And then in the Zeb Wells run, the very last scene is her basically daring Sean to tell someone what she's done because Piotr is so happy that she's back. And it's like, do you really want to ruin his life? And she says to him, yes, it's me. You're Snowflake. I'm back. And I don't know. I, I just think, I think she's always been kind of invested in lying to him a little bit. I don't think that it's it's lying so much as her desperation to recapture that time in her life when she was his little snowflake. Like she was eight years old when Belasco took her and then she was forced to grow up before she was ready. But the time before that, that she's kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. idealizing was when she was Peter's little snowflake. When he saved her from the tractor in his exactly, first appearance. Exactly. So she's still desperate to, you know, hold on to that, to maintain that image of her in his head. Yeah. By lying, I don't mean something nefarious or, you know, I, I just mean like it takes a long time for her to tell him that she knows magic or that she can teleport because she doesn't want to disrupt the way he views her because she thinks of herself as a tarnished thing. Yeah. And he doesn't. And that is so important to her. And so it's really devastating to her whenever he sees her in a light that is what she thinks of herself, but that isn't the way that he viewed, like she needs someone to look at her and only see something good. And he's the person who does that. And so those 21st century stories didn't quite, I think, jive for me. But I do like how Bendis kind of reconnected them. I thought that was good. He also is, you know, when we're talking about like the 21st century stories, these are the ones that significantly contributed to kind of her catapulted rise yes, in popularity. Yes, to her enormous rise. Yeah. So even if, um, you know, they the stories might feel disparate because they're struggling to connect with her really serious uh, origin story, which is hard to grapple, they still are these kind of moments in time that just shot her forward more and more in popularity. And like, that's how we got a New Mutants movie. Right, Absolutely. Also, it's interesting that you brought up Zeb Wells in particular, because he and I have had this conversation before about um, what's similar in our writing and what we really value about each other's writing. And it's the heart. It's the internal mm-hmm. look at characters. It's it's something that I've always connected to in, in Zeb's writing as well, including his New Mutants run. He treats every character with so much respect and humanity and sympathy, no matter what's going on, no matter how ridiculous shit gets in Hellions, there is still like a sympathetic lens. Nanny is treated with respect in that book. Nanny and the Orphan Maker are treated with respect in that book. I mean, I am widely known on the internet as Madeline Pryor's defense attorney. I would, you know, argue on her behalf to the ends of the earth. I argued with Jordan on this very podcast about whether or not she's a real person. Oh, she is. She fully is. Yeah, well, I won, clearly, so it's fine. <laughs> Jordan's wrong. <laughs> well, I was explaining to him because I had read an X-Men Monday where he tried to explain his understanding of the relationship between Madeline and the Phoenix. And I was like, that's actually not correct, Jordan. And we had like, he's such a sweetie. He was very nice about it. It was funny. And we're talking about Jordan D. White, the Jordan D. White, the editor. senior editor of the X-Men office, who is a delight. Who is my boss and a delight. Yes. <laughs> 
anybody listening, if you haven't heard his episode, we talked about Brian Braddock. It's a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, but there is like a digression on Madeline Pryor for quite some time. But when I read that first arc of Hellions, I mean, I was already a big Zeb Wells fan. I had loved New Mutants. But I think that cemented him as like one of my favorite contemporary writers in comics because it was everything I'm always saying about that character. And it was like there, but it was a writer who like got to actually write the thing. And it was, it was incredible to see just the callbacks to the eighties. Like she's so often boiled down to like spooky demon lady, bad, like evil, slutty, witch lady. Like it's very surfacey. And that character is so complicated and was so much more than that in the lead up to Inferno and even in Inferno itself, where I think Claremont gives her a lot of dignity and interiority. Oh yeah. You know, so to see a redraw of that panel where she's in her dream and they've taken all of her facial features away and all given them back to Jean, like to see all of those callbacks, to see her in her flight suit, I was just like, this guy, he always, I mean, listen, he put the Inferno babies into his New Mutants run as a major plot element. So clearly he imprinted on that story the same way I yeah. did. But I'm always astounded by exactly what you're saying, which is the depth of feeling that is given to these characters. And I think that one of the things I like most about the whole Krakoan age is the way that it feels like all of you are putting a lot of thought into what makes these people tick and thinking, you know, obviously they're fictional characters. They operate at the whims of the story. That's how a story works. But thinking about how would this person actually react? I mean, I really enjoyed in the first issue of Trial, the conversation between, or it's not really a conversation, the, the argument between Eric and Lorna, because it's each of them saying like the nastiest possible thing they could say to that person. And you know that they don't quite mean it. Oh, not at all. Yeah. I, they're, they're both hurting and just going for the jugular because of that. Yes. And it feels like really real. Like that felt to me like exactly what both of those two characters would do exactly what each of them would say to each other if they really wanted to hurt each other. That's the kind of thoughtfulness that I've really been appreciating about this writing team, this office right now. It's definitely something special. And you've had my colleagues on before. So maybe this has already been discussed before the way that the X office works together. A little bit, but go ahead if you want, because everybody loves to hear about the inner workings a little bit. So there's no ego in the room. We ask each other for help. We have these discussions about the characters and the kind of choices they would make, their motivation, that kind of thing. Like an example is Zeb Wells was having Polaris show up in his Hellfire Gala issue mm -hmm. of Hellions and having a conversation with Havoc. So we collaborated on that. And then like I was going to show the Hellions in my Hellfire Gala issue, like answering the phone when Prodigy calls. So we collaborated on that. And it's not it's fun. It, you know, like we're playing in the same sandbox and there's no ego about it. It's all just about the best, most authentic story possible. And we were working that way before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And then the pandemic hit and, you know, we were going through the, the 10 of swords event. And that was crazy, especially as it expanded. Right. So I think we trauma bonded during that and like <laughs> got even closer and it became our routine, like as an ex office, wake up in the morning and catch up with each other in the ex slack and post some bullshit and memes or whatever, and then get to work and kind of ask each other questions throughout the day and bounce stuff off each other. And that's still the vibe. That's still the dynamic. We yeah. just like, 
we know what each other is working on at any given time and who's in what book and um, who we need to talk to if we want to use that character. And cast gets shuffled a lot for the same reason, because, you know, oh, well, this character needs to be moved around because now my, my colleague has a need for them in this book and I could use somebody else. Like, it's just a great vibe. Two of the collaborations that were really obvious that I appreciated most, again, as like a big Betsy Braddock fan, but I first was super, super impressed with the way that Teeny and Zeb managed to untangle the Gordian knot that is Betsy and Kanon, which yes. I think is one of the most complicated and difficult stories to deal with in all of X-Men. And I'm astonished that they managed it all. I think the key line is from Teeny's Excalibur when Kanon says, it isn't to be solved, it just is. Because that's sort of the thing about stories like that. You can't go back and rewrite you what's been written. You can't fix it. Right. <laughs> you have to just power through and make something that's good and useful and valuable now. And new. Make something new. Exactly. Something new that allows both of those characters to flourish. And I do think that Kanan is maybe the greatest success story of the Krakoa era. I think she's become... I mean, I was a big revanche fan in the 90s, but I don't think most people were. And it's been really nice to see her blossom into like an A-list X-Man in this... Well, you know, not technically an X-Man because Krakoa had to vote for those. But you get what I'm saying. Like a character in the line. The other thing, though, was the way that you and Teeny did all of the stuff with Betsy and Rachel and their whatever we want to call it. I mean, I, I know what I want to call it, but you get what I'm Same. saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm like, those girls are in love, but oh yeah, oh yeah. I digress. But the way that it felt like it carried through in both books, it felt like Rachel and X Factor fed very naturally into Rachel and Excalibur. And that was really helpful. You know, so you can tell that all of these people are talking. When Jerry was on, he talked about how he and Ben Percy had really sat down and figured out together everything they were doing in Ten of Swords because they were both using Wolverine to do various things. And Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they figured that out to a T. And both of those... Uncle Jerry and Mr. Percy is what Teeny and Vita and I call them. <laughs> I also call him Uncle Jerry. <laughs> Uncle Jerry is the best. We've become like friends and I really, he is one of the nicest people I and have met so, in this like, business. And he's so supportive and open and just the greatest guy. When I first found out about like Trial of Magneto happening and the characters that I was going to be using in that book. One of them was Wolverine. And I was incredibly intimidated because I've never written Wolverine in any huge capacity. The only time I've written him before was in Gwenpool Strikes Back. And, you know, it had that vibe. Like it was goofy. Yeah. And he's a very distinctive character when written seriously. And it's, I imagine that's hard. You want to capture yeah, yeah, that exactly. voice. You so know? the first thing I did was like run to Mr. Percy and be like, I, is this right? Does this dialogue look okay? And he said, it's fantastic, Leo, <laughs> was what he said, I'm sure. Here's my thoughts on this. You're doing fine. I've been told I should have him on the pod and I would love to. I know he listened to the Beast episode with Spencer Ackerman and liked it. I would love to have him on the show. I just do fear that listening to his beautiful voice for like a long extended period of time, I would not know what to do. Like I I would just pause. He would be like, Connor, are you, what are we still talking? And I would just have to collect myself. It's very. So if you want to like acclimate yourself to it a bit more, he he did narrate one of the audiobooks to his own, For his own novel. Yeah. Love that. I think it's called Red Moon. I feel like that could be I may just like get that as like a sleep aid because I find his voice like very <laughs> soothing. 
he writes like thrillers, so I bet it's not actually like a sleep aid. But and you know. I think there's a recording of him reading "Goodnight Moon." Well, that would be perfect. Yes, there yeah. is. Yes, there I'll is. look that up. I have a link when you're ready. <laughs> yes, no, send me that for sure. I'll post it on the Twitter when I post this episode. Also, he shared it in the Slack one day, and we were all just <laughs> like, "What? <laughs> this is amazing." It does feel like an unprecedented level of collaboration. I mean, I think that, you know, we go back to the Claremont era and Claremont and Simonson and Nascenti were all working very closely together, but it was three people. And the sheer size of this office, given how tightly knit it clearly is and how tightly knit all the storytelling is, I think is enormously impressive. I mean, I have two day job clients in that Slack now at this point, and they don't tell me what goes on in it because that wouldn't be allowed. But I can tell that they're having a good time. That's good. Which isn't always true in this business. You know what I mean? Like, this is <laughs> yeah, a tough... Yeah, but we are. And like, we know that it's not forever. We know that nothing this good can last. It's just the way of the world. And so we're trying to make the best of it while we can and have the most fun while we can. And just, you know, enjoy each other as colleagues and friends and confidants during this era. And truth be told, all of it is because of Jonathan Hickman. This is what he curates. This is what he wanted. We were chosen for this reason. When people freaked out about him leaving, I kind of got on my soapbox on Twitter and I was like, Everybody keeps talking about how they wanted to see Jonathan Hickman's vision. And what I don't think you're understanding is that this is Jonathan this is Hickman's his vision. vision. Yeah. Jonathan Hickman's vision is I brought together these people and I trust them. Yes. You know, Cy helped Cy Spurrier by going on. I, I often call people by their first names who I've never met on this show, which is very familiar with me. <laughs> Mr. Spurrier, if you're listening, I apologize for my familiarity. But Cy Spurrier did an interview where he was just like, the pitch was like three paragraphs and we've all read it. You know, like it's not, there's no great secret that we're not going to see. I mean, having worked in this business from the agenting side, like I know what a pitch looks like. I know how things evolve. I imagine that the second he got you all in the room, which was exactly his goal, the story started morphing and changing immediately because what he wanted to build was this collaborative office where everyone's voice was important. Right. That was his plan. That was what he wanted to build with this Krakoan era, this kind of tight-knit collaborative dynamic. And also part of his plan is once it was set up and, and working and solid, he wanted to get out of the way. To go do something else and let you guys and do let us, what you're going to yeah. do. Yeah. Because as long as he's here, the spotlight is going to be on him. And, you know, it's part of, you know, what he wants to like get out of the way and, and let us shine a little more and show, you know, what we've learned from him. And, and what we're planning on. Yeah, well, there's an auteurist perspective that I think a lot of fans bring to comics with these great men, so to speak. I always tried to call it the Krakoa era rather than the Hickman era when I was talking about it on the show because he resists that, yeah. which I think is an impressive and admirable thing about him. He doesn't want everyone to say, oh, everything good that I like in this comic is because of Jonathan Hickman because that's not true and he doesn't want to take credit for things that weren't him. There is, I think, particularly when people collaborate with someone like that, often an attitude where fans who are, you know, enamored of the great creator will be like, oh, well, I liked this part, so clearly he wrote that, and I didn't like this part, so clearly the other person wrote that, and that's just not true a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah, I know. So, it happens I mean, I know you to... know. 
It happens to me and Teeny all the time. Hmm, wonder why. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, obviously I work with Teeny. We're also very good friends. I think that Ten of Swords is one of the most impressive achievements in comics in a long time. I think that it is one of the best X-Men events ever, in my opinion. I think so, too. And I know how much of that was her. Oh, yeah. I I have two important things to say about both Jonathan Hickman and Ten of Swords. The first of which is um, I remember there was this, I think it might have been an Adventures in Poor Taste interview um, with Hickman uh, about Ten of Swords. And the first question was about Teeny and the way Jonathan answered was, I don't know, let's ask her. And then he brought Teeny in and had her finish out the interview instead of mm-hmm. him because yep. <laughs> like, you know, they co-wrote this, this event together. Yeah. It's a huge thing. And people keep treating it like, you know, it was only Jonathan behind the wheel. And I kept seeing people speculate like, oh, clearly Hickman wrote this page or whatever. And I just like, well, I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not going to argue with you on Twitter because that would be stupid. But like, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. There are things in his comics that I can point to and be like, that was my idea. This is my line. Like, you know, because that's the same rule applies to him as it does to the rest of us in the X office. There's no ego. He only wants the best story possible. I complimented Jerry on a scene between Kate and Emma in Marauders. And he was like, Oh, those two really good lines you just mentioned. Those were Jonathan. Yeah. (laughs) That is exactly what you're saying is that he's created and you have all expanded a space in which it's okay to say, Oh, thank you. But that line was written by someone else. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it's a collaboration. It doesn't. And because we like each other. Yes. Like like, no one feels like they need to argue about it. Yeah. The history of comics is so full of people arguing about who created what character or whose idea something was like collaborators who fallen out or whatever, like getting into fights about it. And it's so refreshing to see people go, you know, I said to Tini, I was like, how much, you know, how much input did you have on the sword bearers versus like the realms of other, she was like, oh, you know, that was more Jonathan and Pepe. But like, then I did this. She's like, I just, I don't like to go into this because then people put it on a wiki, like so-and-so created this one thing. And it's much more of all of us talking. Okay. But she came up with all of the other world realms. If she's oh, not, those are all her. She wrote those. They're all her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I like, insist I, on, if yeah. she's not taking the credit for No, she for took it. credit for that. She okay, took credit good, for good, that. Good, good. <laughs> but I was just like, did you come up with Bay the Blood Moon or whatever? And she's like, that was kind of a holistic conversation, though. She's like, I don't think any one person should like get the wiki. She's like, it's just if it's sort of the wikification of like this medium a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Who did There's what, a lot of you know? stuff that we can't tell who exactly came up with it just because it came out in the process of like you know a A brainstorming session like (laughs) right where we're just like talking about stuff so it's it's hard to nail down exactly who had the idea first or anything like that and I wish there was a way that we could just credit it to this generation of X writers like it, it was this this roster right here and to the editors, I feel like people don't think about editorial. At oh, all. yeah, yeah. It's just like Absolutely. I'm biased on that front because my day job is editorial. But, you know, when I'm agenting a book, a lot of the stuff that goes into a finished novel that I'm working on is stuff I suggested because I read the first draft and said, what if this happened? Like, you know. Well, that's what makes a good editor. Like, Right. I'm never going to walk in and be like, I co-wrote yeah. this because I didn't. But, you know, it's a it's all a process. And I think that you guys are really exemplifying that in a way that's nice to see. 
Thank you. As a fan, lifelong of these characters, it's just really nice to see them in the hands. For now, like you said, nothing lasts forever. But if anybody's listening who is going to take that as some kind of like baleful prediction, like I think it's going to be good. Oh for yeah, a while no, nothing like that is. <laughs> <laughs> I just know people are always very. They they read into it like with yes. the most bad faith perspective. There's a chicken little attitude where it's like if we hear anything that sounds remotely negative, we're going to assume that everything yeah. is going up in flames. Yeah, I was just going to say the other thing that I wanted to say about Ten of Swords and Jonathan Hickman is that Jonathan Hickman is obsessed with Ileana Rasputina. <laughs> <laughs> He loves her so much. She is one of his favorite characters. He thinks that Emma Frost is the best character, period. Like the coolest, the most badass. And then Ileana is like, you know, right on up there too. Yeah, I know he's also a big Monet fan. Oh yeah. There's sort of a theme. Like those are, I think (laughs) he's got taste. He's got taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, what I love is when a straight guy has that kind of taste in characters because I feel like women and gay men really love those characters but when a straight guy is like my favorite x-man is Monet or Emma or something I'm like aha like this is a person I can talk to yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> like okay you get it okay you get it. You we taste. get each other right we're on, we're, on the same, <laughs> we're on the same page here I think now is actually a great time to pause for the cerebral character file on Ileana I will take you through her complete publication history from giant size x-men number one to the present Then we will come back for more with Leah Williams. We will talk about our favorite magic stories. And then we will answer questions from listeners like you. So don't go anywhere because you might fall into a disc of light and come back seven years older. And we would hate to see it. Stay tuned and we'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Ileana Nikolaevna Rasputina, best known by the codename Magic, but sometimes addressed as the Dark Child, is one of the most iconic characters in the X-Men franchise. Introduced as Colossus's baby sister, she became a major player in the 80s run of New Mutants, when Chris Claremont had her fall into the hell dimension Limbo, where seven years passed for her subjectively, while only seconds passed on Earth. She emerged as the demon sorceress Magic, having conquered Limbo at the age of 13, and became roommate and best friend to Uncanny X-Men protagonist Kitty Pride. After a heroic sacrifice regressed her back to childhood in the franchise-wide event Inferno, in 1993, Ilyana was the first victim of the mutant-killing legacy virus. She returned to publication 14 years later, and in the time since, Magic has become one of the Marvel Universe's most celebrated and beloved heroes. Technically created by Len Wein and Dave Cockrum, Piotr Rasputin's unnamed little sister first appears in 1975's Giant Size X-Men No. 1, where Piotr demonstrates his power as Colossus by turning to organic steel in order to save the girl from an out-of-control tractor on their Soviet farm. Charles Xavier, having witnessed this feat of strength, convinces Piotr to become one of his new X-Men. Six years later, in 1981's Uncanny X-Men 145 by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum, the child, now identified by the name Ilyana Rasputin, is one of several human loved ones of the X-Men to be kidnapped by the supervillain Arcade's associate Miss Locke in an effort to blackmail the X-Men. At one point, an evil robot imposter Ilyana has a gun, which is pretty funny. After the day is saved, Ilyana is overjoyed to reunite with Pyotr and asks to stay with him in America. Xavier secures permission from her parents because he wants to test her for latent mutation. Xavier telepathically teaches the girl English, and she becomes a background character at the school. To help her acclimate, he also telepathically teaches Russian to all of the X-Men. The following year, in Uncanny X-Men 160, the X-Men and Ilyana have taken shelter in the Bermuda Triangle. Don't worry about it. It turns out the island where they're staying also features a number of portals to Limbo, also called Other Place, a hell dimension that exists outside time. 
Its ruler, the demon sorcerer Belasco, lures Ileana until she falls into one such portal, a disc of shimmering light. The X-Men follow in an attempt to rescue her, and do battle with versions of themselves from an alternate timeline where they rescued Ileana, but remain trapped in limbo themselves. Aided by the elderly alternate version of Storm from that timeline, now a powerful sorceress, the X-Men manage to retrieve Ileana and transport home, only for Belasco to grab the child away from them at the last second. The X-Men are then astounded, moments later, when another stepping disc returns Ileana to them, now seven years older, a teenager the same age as Kitty. Ileana keeps mum about what she experienced in Limbo and doesn't display any superhuman powers. Xavier is perturbed by her new immunity to his telepathy. He assigns her to be Kitty's roommate, and the two become best friends. In 1983's Uncanny X-Men 131, Ileana volunteers to program a danger room hologram, and something compels her to create images of Limbo, including her former captors Belasco and Sim. Kitty is disturbed and turns off the simulation, driving Ileana into a murderous rage. Ileana manifests a mystical weapon, the fiery soul sword, and attacks Kitty, injuring her despite the fact that Kitty is phased at the time. Devastated and brought back to her senses, Ileana declares she now remembers everything that happened to her in Limbo. A few months later, in a four-issue Storm and Ileana magic miniseries written by Chris Claremont, we learn the harrowing truth of Ileana's time in Limbo. Groomed by Belasco from a young age to serve as his apprentice and consort, Ileana was slowly corrupted by Belasco, who planned to make five bloodstones from her soul in order to summon forth the elder gods he serves. He had only created the first bloodstone when she was taken from him by the aged sorceress Aurora from Uncanny X-Men 160, and that same alternate timeline's version of Kitty Pride now called Cat, who had been turned into a half-demon feline monster by Belasco some years earlier. Over Cat's objections, the sorceress Aurora tried to teach Ileana magic herself, believing it would protect her from Belasco in the future. As a year passed in subjective time, Ileana was able to observe during training that both she and Aurora had corruption at their core, placed there by Belasco. Cat eventually took Ileana away in the night, unwilling to leave her in Aurora's care any longer. On their journey, Ileana fell through a stepping disc, directly into the clutches of Belasco's servant, the demon Sim. Cat rescued her, and the two began a long trek to Belasco's palace, where a portal could hopefully send Ileana back to Earth. The journey on foot across Limbo took two years, and Cat taught Ileana how to fight along the way. When they finally arrived, they were deceived and overpowered by Belasco, who transformed Cat fully into a mindless demon and claimed Ileana as his apprentice, the Dark Child. At Belasco's urging, Ileana made the second bloodstone herself. Despite years of training at Belasco's side, a conflicted Ileana found herself unable to use Aurora's white magic to create anything. Her soul was too corrupted. Desperate to escape before she fully lost herself to Belasco's influence, Ileana finally manifested her mutant power, control over the stepping disks, which allowed her to teleport. Traveling through time and space within Limbo, she encountered the New Mutants, strangers to her at this point, and observed a battle between Belasco and Sorceress Aurora, in which Aurora was partially corrupted. Returning to the present, she watched as the now-aged Aurora battled Belasco once more in an effort to save Ilyana. Ilyana tried to help Aurora, but they were attacked by Cat, whom Ilyana was forced to kill. Cat had already mortally wounded Aurora, and Ilyana kills her too to prevent Belasco from using her soul to make a bloodstone. Escaping Belasco's wrath via the stepping disks, Ilyana arrived in the Soviet Union, where her parents did not recognize her, as she was now several years older than she was supposed to be. Believing her an insane imposter, they shut the door in her face. Recaptured by Belasco, Ilyana was unable to stop him from carving out a third piece of her soul to create the third bloodstone. He then banished her to Sorceress Aurora's garden, where she spent months in the snow once again attempting to recreate Aurora's white magic. Finally, she realized she could not create life, only destruction and vengeance. 
Channeling the darkest part of her own soul, Ilyana created the Soul Sword, claiming her full power and using it to attack and dethrone Belasco. Sparing her abuser's life lest she become a demon like him herself, Ilyana calls forth a stepping disc and returns to Earth, closing the time loop with the events of Uncanny X-Men 160. The following month, in New Mutants 14, Ilyana turns 14. Sim appears at Xavier's, sent by Belasco to capture her, but with the help of her new friend, she's able to defeat Sim with the Soul Sword. Using a spell to alter the New Mutants' memories so they forget her use of sorcery, she does confess to having mutant teleportation abilities, and begins training with the class as a formal member of the team. It doesn't take long until she has to reveal the whole truth, when Kitty is kidnapped by Emma Frost, the White Queen of the Hellfire Club. The rest of the team, especially devout Christian Rain Sinclair, aka Wolfsbane, is angry to have been deceived. Ilyana's resistance to telepathy proves vital in escaping the White Queen's trap, and teleporting with Danny Moonstar through Limbo, she's able to show Danny some of the horrors of her childhood. Ilyana comes to understand that she can only teleport through Limbo, as her power is tied to the stepping discs. Still not fully in control of the power, she time travels for a bit before finally arriving at the right moment to save Kitty and the New Mutants from the White Queen and her students, the Hellions. In the famous Demon Bear story arc from New Mutants 18 to 20, it's Ilyana who's able to destroy the titular Demon Bear with her soul sword and save Danny's parents. To her distress, the injuries she receives in the battle spontaneously protect themselves by manifesting strange pieces of silver armor. A few months later, in Uncanny X-Men 188, Ilyana is sent by Professor X to back up the X-Men in battle with the aliens called the Dire Wraiths. She's forced to reveal both her mutant power and her demonic sorcery to her brother Pyotr, which she had hidden from him out of shame. But Pyotr promises to love and support her regardless, and does not judge her for what happened to her in Limbo. Back in the pages of New Mutants, Ilyana is attacked by the techno-organic alien Warlock, who doesn't understand what he's doing. She teleports to Limbo and tries to burn out a techno-organic viral infection with the Soul Sword, which leads to a very strange adventure in space where she rescues some X-Men clones possessed by the Brood, but truly, do not worry about it. A few issues later, she uses her sorcery to exercise a superhuman influence from teammates Wolfsbane and Sunspot, but she's perturbed to realize the silvery armor now appears whenever she uses her magic, and each time it seems to grow and spread, encroaching upon more and more of her body. As the Secret Wars 2 company-wide event ramps up, Ilyana aids the X-Men in facing the cosmic entity called the Beyonder, who is able to fully manifest her demonic side as the Dark Child, driving her to infernal madness. Luckily, or perhaps not, Kitty is somehow able to seize the Soul Sword herself, and uses it to restore Ilyana to normal. In the 1985 New Mutants Special Edition and Uncanny X-Men Annual, the New Mutants are captured and brought to Asgard by the god Loki. Held captive and tortured by Amora the Enchantress, Ilyana is able to use her teleportation power to spread the rest of the team throughout Asgard by scattering them across space and time. Separating Ilyana and her Dark Child side with magic, the Enchantress attempts to make the Dark Child her willing slave, but the New Mutants manage to overpower the goddess and rescue Ilyana. Locking up Amora, Ilyana becomes the Enchantress herself for a time, studying Asgardian magic. She's tempted to stay behind in Asgard, but after learning that either all of the team could return to Earth or none of them, she agrees to depart with her friends. The New Mutants return to discover that a reformed Magneto is their new headmaster, as a grievously injured Xavier has been forced to depart for Shi'ar space. In another encounter with the Beyonder, the entity cleanses Ilyana of her demonic corruption, but the power immediately transfers itself to Kitty, which horrifies Ilyana. She reclaims it to spare Kitty, which enrages the Beyonder, who is offended Ilyana has rejected his generosity. He murders and then resurrects the New Mutants, leaving them catatonic and emotionless. After the Beyonder's defeat, Magneto struggles to snap his students out of this strange fugue state. The White Queen offers to help them, and while she uses somewhat nefarious means at first, eventually she and Magneto join forces to actually cure the teens of their condition. When they elect to return to Xavier's, the White Queen makes no effort to prevent them from leaving. 
While Ilyana is back to her senses, she finds that her magic is now manifesting in darker and darker ways, even when that isn't her intention. She doesn't have much time to investigate the matter before the new mutants are attacked by the Magus, ruler of the Technarchy, Warlock's father. Ilyana hides them in limbo, but the Magus tracks them there, joining forces with Sim and infecting the demon, as well as legions of other demons, with the Technorganic Transmode virus. Scattering her friends through time and space once again to protect them, Ilyana battles Sim for control of Limbo, but is unable to best his now regenerating techno-organic form. She then attempts to destroy Limbo with the Soul Sword, but is shunted into outer space, where she encounters the space pirates called the Starjammers and their new member, Professor Xavier. Though she's apparently purified of demonic influence, Ilyana begins to transform into the Dark Child upon returning to Limbo and reclaiming the Soul Sword, which horrifies her. She insists she will never return to Limbo again, but the new mutants cannot return to Earth without the use of her teleportation powers. Xavier therefore orders Karma to possess Ilyana and force the issue without her consent. Enraged, Ilyana withdraws socially and begins rejecting Magneto's authority at the school. Though she tries to scare Magneto off, he insists that she is his student and he wants to protect her, offering to battle the demons of Limbo in her stead. Ilyana is moved and tries to be more of a team player again, but not long afterward, under new writer Louise Simonson in the 1988 franchise-wide event, Fall of the Mutants, her close friend and teammate Doug Ramsey, aka Cypher, is murdered by the mad scientist called the Animator. Ilyana tries to kill the Animator in vengeance, and when her teammates object, she instead teleports him to Limbo, throwing him to the mercy of Sim and the other demons. Upon their return to the school, the new mutants are immediately devastated by the televised apparent deaths of the entire X-Men team in Dallas, including Ilyana's brother Pyotr, whom she had teleported to Texas herself to assist the others. Mad with grief for both Doug and Pyotr, Ilyana begins to physically transform into the Dark Child, at times manifesting horns, hooves, and a tail. Learning that the X-Men's ally Forge was responsible for the spell that killed the X-Men, Ilyana attempts to murder him. The new mutants are intercepted by Mystique's Freedom Force because the precognitive destiny foresaw the attack. Destiny prophecies that Ilyana must leave and learn, or the Earth will be changed forever. Ignoring her, Ilyana seizes Forge, whom she's unable to defeat on Earth, and takes him to Limbo so she can kill him there. It's Danny who brings Ilyana to her senses, by summoning forth the image of the Dark Child to show Ilyana how far she's fallen. Unbeknownst to Ilyana and the rest of the world, the X-Men had actually been resurrected after their deaths in Dallas, and were now operating out of a secret headquarters in the Australian outback. In Uncanny X-Men 231, when the Russian legendary figure Baba Yaga attacks the New Mutants, Ilyana decides to use necromancy to summon an apparition of her brother, as Iron, like his steel body, will be able to deflect Baba Yaga's magic. She actually summons the real Pyotr, but Colossus maintains the X-Men's secret and pretends to be a ghost. He reassures Ilyana that she is still a good person, and returns to Australia through a portal. Ilyana contemplates using the necromantic spell again, but understands that using the spell even once should have corrupted her forever. She's unsure of why it didn't do so. In Limbo, the reader learns this was exactly Sim's plan in dispatching Baba Yaga, to encourage Ilyana to use enough black magic to bring down the barriers between Earth and Limbo. This leads into the franchise-wide event Inferno, in which Ilyana and the New Mutants are forced into battle with Sim when they have to teleport through Limbo again. The team is horrified to witness moments from Ilyana's childhood as they travel through the unstable time-space continuum of Limbo, including the little child Ilyana being abused by Sim. The demon Nastir, a sorcerer who claims to love Ilyana, convinces her to let him help the new mutants. He tricks her into claiming her dark nature entirely, transforming her irrevocably into the Dark Child. Ilyana teleports the team back to New York, but Nastir immediately seizes control of the stepping disc, expanding it and keeping it open as demons pour out into the streets of Manhattan. Ilyana flees through the city, resisting the urge to use her soul sword again, but ultimately snaps, damning herself further. While battling Sim, she's rescued by her brother Pyotr, who is aghast at her demonic appearance. 
Rather than overjoyed to see her brother, Ilyana is ashamed that he's seeing her like this and flees to Limbo, where she seizes back her throne and decides Limbo is where she belongs. Wolfsbane begs her to let the team save the little girl Ilyana they'd seen in their jaunt through Limbo, which makes Ilyana realize how to end the Inferno. By sacrificing herself, becoming a child of light and retroactively erasing her own existence by entrusting her younger self to Wolfsbane. When the demons are pulled back to Limbo, the Dark Child's charred armor is all that remains on Earth, and Pyotr is astonished to find the little girl Ilyana inside it, as though she'd never fallen into hell to begin with. The new mutants are confused by the time paradox, but reason that their Ilyana did still exist, as they still remember her. Child Ilyana is returned to the custody of her parents in Russia. Three years later, in 1992, shortly after Chris Claremont's departure from the X-Men franchise, Ilyana returns in the pages of the new adjectiveless X-Men title, now written by Fabian Misiesa. Captured by Russian government agents who murder her parents, Ilyana is placed in an experimental device in an effort to reactivate her now latent mutant powers, so that she can battle an enemy called the Soul Skinner, who's unable to use his own powers on children. The X-Men defeat the Soul Skinner and rescue Ilyana, who returns to America now that she and Pyotr have been orphaned. A few days later, however, it's determined that Ilyana is one of the first mutants to contract the new legacy virus, an invariably lethal autoimmune disease affecting only mutants. In 1993's Uncanny X-Men 303 by Scott Lobdell and Richard Bennett, Kitty and Jubilee watch over little Ilyana as she slowly and painfully dies of the virus. Pyotr isn't there, as he and the X-Men were away, attempting to find a cure. Her funeral in the following issue is crashed by Magneto and his acolytes, and Pyotr, disgusted with Xavier's failure to save his sister, decides to leave the X-Men and join up with them. Four years later, in a 1997 miniseries called New Mutants Truth or Death by Ben Robb and Bernard Chang, Teenage Ilyana and the New Mutants time travel from the past and interrupt a reunion of the surviving New Mutants in the present. They're horrified to learn, among other tragedies, about Ilyana's death from the legacy virus, but are approached with an offer of help by Ilyana's brother Mikhail, whom she had never known because he was believed dead while she was alive. The older versions of the New Mutants, now mostly members of X-Force, know Mikhail as a supervillain, and a fight breaks out with their younger selves. Karma betrays the older team to help the younger versions, because she understands Mikhail's grief at the loss of his sister. Mikhail uses his reality-warping powers to allegedly alter Ilyana's DNA to make her immune to the virus in the future, but Doug Ramsey is able to figure out the truth. Mikhail was himself infected with Legacy, and believed Ilyana's part demonic body could build up tolerance to the disease over time. He therefore transferred the infection from himself to her, believing it would spare them both, but actually created the infection that would eventually kill her. It's a real bummer of a story. Karma erases the younger New Mutants' memories of the time travel adventure and the teens return to the past. In Ilyana's absence, the human sorceress Amanda Sefton, a longtime ally and sometime honorary member of the X-Men, claims the Soul Sword and the Throne of Limbo, taking the codename Magic in honor of Ilyana and working to keep Belasco and Sim out of power. Eight years after Truth or Death, the Scarlet Witch has gone crazy and created a global reality warp in the company-wide event House of M. In the altered timeline, Ilyana is still alive, but she's sent back to the grave when the reality warp is disrupted by the end of the event, the Decimation. Two years later, in the 2007 arc The Quest for Magic by Craig Kyle, Christopher Yost, and Scotty Young, we see the consequences of Ilyana's brief resurrection. Because Limbo exists out of time, Belasco was confused by the apparent vision of Ilyana alive, and he now attempts to flush her out from wherever she's hiding. Deposing Amanda Sefton as a pretender, Belasco retakes his throne and attempts to summon Ilyana, but is only able to recreate the Dark Child. Ilyana's soul is gone. Repulsed, Belasco rejects the Dark Child, banishing her from his sight, and continues to seek out the real Ilyana. He kidnaps the new students at the Xavier School, the Academy X class, whom he witnessed operating with Ilyana in the House of M reality. Some students escape him, and the Dark Child approaches them with an offer of help, 
convincing teenager Pixie to offer up a piece of her own soul to create a bloodstone and a soul dagger. The Dark Child intends to corrupt Pixie further and teaches her a teleportation spell so they can assail Belasco's citadel. Apparently destroying Belasco, the Dark Child retakes her throne and attempts to fully absorb Pixie's soul. She's prevented by the arrival of the X-Men and is aghast when Pyotr sees her as she is now. The Dark Child teleports everyone else back to Xavier's, intent on locating and reclaiming the soul of Ilyana Rasputin. About two years later, in the miniseries Ex Infernus by C.B. Sobolski and Giuseppe Comancoli, we see that the Dark Child has been seeking the Bloodstone Amulet and the Soul Sword, the pieces of Ilyana's soul that were manifested into objects so long ago. The amulet is in the hands of Ananim, a.k.a. Witchfire, Belasco's half-human daughter, who has staged a rebellion in Limbo and intends to complete her father's work and bring the Elder Gods to Earth. On Utopia, Pixie accidentally draws the soul sword out of Nightcrawler's body, where Amanda Sefton had placed it for safekeeping, within the purest person she knew. The Dark Child teleports to them and overpowers Pixie, reclaiming the soul sword. With a fraction of her soul now in her possession, the Dark Child is once again Ilyana, at least in part, and begins to feel remorse for her actions and empathy for others. Running away, she's captured by Ananim, but is rescued by a team of X-Men including her brother Pyotr and a reluctant Pixie. Ananim manages to seize Pixie's bloodstone and bends the girl's soul to create another, finally producing the five bloodstones necessary for the ritual of the Elder Gods. Teaming up with Pixie, Ilyana is able to defeat Witchfire and get one of Pixie's bloodstones back, but Ananim escapes with the amulet and the other four. Ilyana is ashamed of herself and does not want to return to Earth, but is convinced to try to be a hero once more. This pivots into a relaunch of New Mutants by writer Zeb Wells, in which Ilyana arrives from a mysterious journey through time to rejoin the New Mutants, now a squad of X-Men led by Cannonball. She'd been seeking the missing bloodstones and had witnessed the deaths of her teammates in the future. Now she returns to the past to avert that timeline from coming to pass. She arrives just in time to convince Cannonball that Danny and Karma are in danger and joins him in rescuing them from the Mad Omega-level mutant Legion. Ilyana allows herself to be absorbed into Legion's psyche and uses her soul sword to begin slaying some of his more violent personalities. When Karma, enraged by the murder of a child, kills one of the altars herself, Ilyana takes the blame when they get back to Utopia. During the franchise-wide event Second Coming, Ilyana is targeted alongside the X-Men's other teleporters and banished back to Limbo. In the miniseries X-Men Hellbound by Christopher Yost and Tom Rainey, Pyotr demands that Cyclops allow him to lead a mission to rescue Ilyana and drafts Pixie into the effort. The demon Nastir attempts to corrupt Pixie into turning against Ilyana, and Ilyana taunts the girl to kill her. Pixie, undaunted, attacks Nastir instead. Ilyana then begs Pixie to kill her, because without most of her soul, she feels like a monster and lives every day in shame and agony. Freeing Ilyana from bondage, Pixie helps her defeat Nastir, and Ilyana promises Pixie she will try to restore the girl's soul as well as her own. Back in the pages of New Mutants, Ilyana feels a disturbance and realizes Pixie has been kidnapped. This triggers the events of the bad future she's seeking to prevent, so she takes the New Mutants to Limbo to stop it. It turns out the mutant babies Nastir had used to seize control of her stepping disc back in the Inferno so many years ago had secretly been raised in Limbo in a U.S. government operation called Project Purgatory. The government hoped to turn the children into weapons, but lost touch with the project and assumed it lost. In the present, the mad Inferno babies and their one-time caretakers slash captors now intend to use the Bloodstone Amulet to free the Elder Gods. Ilyana is captured and taken to where Pixie's being held, and Project Purgatory unites the five Bloodstones by seizing the one in Pixie's possession. Karma manages to escape, and Ilyana teleports herself, Karma, and Pixie to safety. She reveals that she lied when she said she came back to save everyone. She came back to save Karma, specifically, as she needed her help. This is why she had let Karma use her soul sword back in Legion's mind. Because now, Karma can enter Legion's mind again and awaken his most powerful personality, a god with untapped Omega-level reality-warping potential. 
As the Elder Gods arrive on Earth, Legion wipes them from existence and then destroys the Bloodstone Amulet, returning the five Bloodstones to Ilyana and Pixie. While the gems cannot be turned back into essence, having them in their possession fully restores both women to themselves. Karma confronts Ilyana, realizing Ilyana manipulated all the events in order to get revenge on the Elder Gods, and Ilyana admits it. The Wells run ends with Karma unsure of whether to tell Cyclops about what Ilyana has done. But as Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning begin their own run on the title, we see that she's turned Ilyana in. Ilyana has no remorse, but understands she has betrayed Cyclops' trust. She's imprisoned on Utopia with an explosive vest that will detonate if she attempts to teleport away. Ilyana shows no interest in escape, even when some demons of limbo attempt to bust her loose. When the new mutants come to her for help, she teaches Doug Ramsey, who got better, don't worry about it, see last episode on Selene, or Doug's own episode, a spell that will help in their quest, but refuses to leave her imprisonment. She assures her brother Piotr that her captivity is for the best, as she must regain the trust of the X-Men. Her faith in Cyclops' forgiveness is rewarded, as she's let out of the brig on occasion for high-level missions requiring a teleporter. During a conflict with the Juggernaut, who has been chosen by an ancient entity and become one of the worthy, do not worry about it, Ilyana teleports herself, Pyotr, and Kitty to the realm of Siderak, the demon lord who originally empowered the Juggernaut. They inform Siderak that Juggernaut has begun serving another entity, and convince him to withdraw his powers. Ilyana then offers to take the power of Siderak herself. Pyotr is horrified, but Ilyana insists she's already damned. To spare her the burden, Pyotr offers himself in her place, becoming the new Juggernaut over Kitty's objections. When they return to Earth, Kitty dumps Pyotr, but Ilyana is pleased. They are now very much alike, in a way they have not been since she was first lost to Limbo. A month later, the 2011 franchise-wide event Schism leads to a break between Cyclops and Wolverine on the future of the decimated mutant race. Ilyana and Pyotr elect to stay on Utopia with Cyclops in a new run written by Kieran Gillen, and Ilyana's offered more leniency in terms of her imprisonment. She's even named to Cyclops' new team of X-Men, where she sticks close to Pyotr, using her magic and her willpower to help him hold back Siderak's murderous influence. It quickly becomes clear she doesn't have the power to contain it fully, so Pyotr decides to lock himself into the brig with Ilyana to protect the people around them from his uncontrollable rage. Then, as Avengers vs. X-Men ramps up, Ilyana and Pyotr are two of the hosts infused with portions of the divided Phoenix Force as members of the Phoenix Five alongside Cyclops, Emma Frost, and Namor the Submariner. The five set about using their new godlike power to solve problems facing the global community. Ilyana uses her own power to transform famine-ravaged land across Africa into lush farming country in an effort to solve world hunger. The Avengers, believing the Phoenix will invariably corrupt its hosts, form a resistance movement to destroy the Phoenix Five. Eventually, Namor is struck down, and his piece of the Phoenix is divided among the remaining four. This development enables Spider-Man to convince Ilyana and Pyotr to attack each other in an effort to seize more power. The Phoenix Fragments leave them both, transferring to Cyclops, who rescues the Rasputins. Teleporting herself and Pyotr to Siberia to regroup, Ilyana is delighted when Pyotr has a nervous breakdown over all the horrible things he's done first as the Juggernaut and then as part of the Phoenix Five. Ilyana confesses that she orchestrated the Siderak Dilemma in the first place, eager to make Pyotr understand what it was like to be damned, so that he would stop treating her as the child she was before she fell into limbo. Horrified, Pyotr attacks her, but Ilyana teleports them to Limbo, where she uses her own power as a Hell Lord to easily free Pyotr from Siderak's influence. She notes she could have done this at any time, and Pyotr swears he will kill her if he ever sees her again. Ilyana, remorseless, is pleased he has understood her lesson. This is a weird beat, honestly, in that it doesn't really get picked up on by the writers who follow Gillen on the book, so mostly don't worry about it. After Cyclops goes full Dark Phoenix and kills Professor Xavier, he's brought down by the Scarlet Witch and Hope Summers, who disperse the Phoenix and use its power to restart the process of mutant manifestation for the first time since House of M. Depowered mutants from the Decimation remain depowered. 
Ilyana evades capture and helps Magneto break Cyclops and Emma out of prison as the franchise is relaunched under new writer Brian Michael Bendis. Cyclops still believes in his new radical vision for mutant kind's future. He decides to establish a new underground Xavier school, and Ilyana decides to help him. Her teleportation power enables Cyclops to find many newly manifesting mutants before Wolverine can. Ilyana gets a pretty massive push in this era, as well as the new costume designed by Chris Pachalo that has become iconic in the years since. As the former Phoenix Five all find their powers on the Fritz, Ilyana's connection to Limbo begins to destabilize the dimension itself. She's attacked by the demonic entity Dormammu, who seeks to seize Limbo from her control, but he activates her Dark Child side, and Ilyana is able to banish him. Eventually, to protect Limbo and her students from Dormammu, she absorbs the entire dimension into her own body. How does this work? Don't worry about it. It just comes back eventually, and we should all just smile and nod. Deciding she needs a better handle on her sorcery, Ilyana travels many years back in time and seeks out Doctor Strange, explaining what will happen to her in the future and asking him to train her. Ilyana then brokers peace between Cyclops and Kitty, who was pretty pissed that Dark Phoenix Cyclops murdered Professor X. After the Battle of the Atom event, Kitty and her own students, time-displaced versions of the original five X-Men, honestly don't worry about it right now, abandon Wolverine school and join Cyclopses. It turns out all the power malfunctions are because of nano-sentinels sent by Dark Beast, and the nano-sentinels get dealt with. Honestly, don't worry about that either. Eventually, Kitty forces a reunion between Ilyana and Pyotr, and Ilyana apologizes for what she did to him, admitting she long ago needed to seek out training like what she's now received with Strange. Pyotr forgives her. Then comes Inhumans vs. X-Men, and as you know, I don't do that shit. Pass. Absolutely not. All you need to know magic-wise is that Cyclops dies, and with the Earth poisoned for all mutants by the Terrigen Mist, Ilyana transports the entire school, now reunited, into Limbo, where the Mist can't reach them. She wards the grounds from demonic incursion, but there's a lot going on, and she's horrified when a little mutant girl named Sapna she's been mentoring is corrupted by demons as she once was. Ilyana is forced to kill Sapna with the Soul Sword to destroy the entity called the World Eater, and Sapna's consciousness begins to inhabit the Soul Sword. Do not worry about this, hopefully ever again. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Ilyana is one of countless mutants to become a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Reporting to Captain Commander Cyclops, who got better, Ilyana is named one of the four great captains of Krakoa, a leader in affairs of war. After an adventure in Shi'ar space with her old classmates, she's named in Saturnine's Prophecy as one of the sword bearers of Krakoa in the 2020 franchise-wide event Ten of Swords, and fights to defend all creation from invasion by Arako and Ammon. Then, in the pages of New Mutants by Vita Ayala and Rod Rice, she and some of her old friends decide to take it upon themselves to train the young mutants of Krakoa, whom they feel are being ignored by the ruling Quiet Council. Ilyana is the tough teacher who keeps the kids in line, whereas Danny, Karma, Warpath, and Wolfsbane take a gentler route. Meanwhile, outside of the X-Book, she recurs in Strange Academy as an instructor at Doctor Strange's school for mystical adapts. In 2022, Ilyana is set to take the stage for a focus arc called The Labors of Magic, in which she will apparently face off against Madeline Pryor, the Goblin Queen, for control of Limbo. Are you psyched? I'm psyched. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. Thank you for your patience as I tried to untangle all of the very complicated <laughs> Ilyana stories, particularly in that period between her death of the legacy virus and her return because it is the return in particular a wild journey through like six different books in very confusing ways and some of you have questions about that and we will get there when we get there but first i am here with ex-office writer leah williams currently writing the trial of magneto leah i have to ask what are the odds that zaladane queen of the sun people will return before the end of trial to reunite with her father magneto and her sister polaris oh you never know 
Okay. You never know. (laughs) I would have felt really remiss if I didn't ask. Of course, of course. I just think they'd have a lot to talk about. You know, Krakoa is for all mutants, even mutants who are insane witches from the Savage Land, in my opinion. Anyway, we are back and we are going to talk a little bit about our favorite Ileana stories and the things about the character that really speak to us. Leah, you had mentioned wanting to talk a little bit more about her relationship with Belasco and the stuff in those early stories. What were you thinking about that? There's just so much to unpack with... um... A loaded question, I realize, but like, <laughs> like <laughs> what did you have to say about this really complicated thing? But you know. I, There's just so much to unpack with that dynamic and how closely it follows you know, a real world scenario of, you know, like child sex abuse and particularly, you know, this older man is grooming her Mm -hmm. to be his little monster. And, you know, right in the very beginning, um, when he's first kidnapped her and there's a line where he's saying to Ileana, like, you are pure and unspoiled, you know, Mm -hmm. even more so than my previous victim, who is Kitty Pride, you know, this world's version of Kitty Pride. And then within a couple pages, we see that Kitty Pride coming back and fighting him and she's grown up, she's womanly and she's furious. So angry. Yeah. Yeah. I find that so resonant, you know, as a survivor of abuse, seeing somebody else who's gone through it and come back to be like, no, you are not doing this to another person. Mm -hmm. And of course, like, you know, the, the tragedy of it is that they become friends, this world's kitty and Ileana. The cat, they call her cat. Cat. Yeah. Only for cat to meet a terrible fate. Terrible end, yeah. I mean, Ilyana's forced to kill her, which yeah. is horrific because Kat tries so hard to save Ilyana that eventually Belasco punishes her by turning her fully into a cat creature. And then they spend years together in the castle with Kat as like a pet who scares her. And Ilyana's only friend. Yeah, but like she can't speak anymore. It's really messed up. And then in the end... Cat is fully at that point ensorcelled by Belasco and Ileana has to break her neck to try to save the elder Aurora, the sorceress Aurora, but fails. I mean, it really just, it's a rough, it's a really rough mini. It is. It reminds me a lot of what Rachel goes through in Days of Future Past, actually, when Rachel has to psychically experience the deaths of everyone she cares about. Yeah, yeah. It's super rough. Kate Pride, notably, is the point of connectivity between those two characters. And they're often, I think in fandom, a lot of people are like, which of them should Kate date is like the big debate that people have between those two characters. And I do think that Claremont very pointedly doesn't really have them overlap, which is interesting. Like, I think that Kate and Ilyana's friendship is really central to the pre-Inferno period or to the pre-Fall of the Mutants period, I guess I should say. And then after Fall of the Mutants, when Kitty goes off to Excalibur. Then it's about that's Rachel when the and friendship Kitty. with yeah. Rachel really starts to build. Yeah, absolutely. They both serve that same role in her life, which is Kitty is someone who, while by this point now in 2021, has been through her fair share of trauma. She led a somewhat charmed life initially. Yeah, absolutely. Before meeting the X-Men. Stephanie Burt and I talked about this in the episode we did on Kate. As a young woman, Kitty's 
prevailing obsession is trying to help and be there for these friends of hers who have been through untold suffering by the time they're her age or a little older, and she can't quite wrap her head around it. And so I think that it's important that we as the reader see the scope of truly how horrific, like, and what Claremont does here, I think is actually very smart, which is, Ileana is lost in limbo and then comes back as a teenager in the same issue on Canny X-Men 160. And then it's like a year before we find out what happened. She's just around. Yeah. And they're all like, what could she possibly have been through? Nothing good. You know, there's the threat of the bloodstone amulet and all that stuff. But he lets us get to know her and see her and Kitty becoming best friends and see Kitty trying to understand and reach her before we get to see behind the curtain exactly what happened to her and, and how terrible it was. then it just packs one hell of a wallop once you find yeah. out everything that she was dealing with internally another thing that is particularly resonant about that magic mini series and the way that you know belasco goes about carrying out his abuse you know it begins with the love bombing like magic mm -hmm. is saying he loves me he would never hurt me he gave me this gift exactly and he also isolates her from her friends and family which is like a classic abuser tactic because you know when their victim is uh pulled away from anybody who would interfere or kind of thwart his efforts to abuse somebody like that's how they get away with it. I was also struck on this reread by like a very specific point of imagery that I think had not quite jumped out at me before, which is when Ilyana and Sorceress Aurora are sitting in Aurora's garden and Ilyana's like, what is this crystal I can see in my chest when we're in this astral form? And it's like, that's Belasco inside you. And then she looks at Aurora and she sees that Aurora has one too and it's bigger. Again, it's not said, but the implication is that he abused Aurora as well. She was the one it took the longest for him to break. He says that in an explicit way. The big thing that he poisons Ilyana's mind with, and it's something that she carries with her for the rest of her tenure up through Inferno. And this is, I think, what Claremont was trying to get at in his Reddit AMA. And I think people took him a little too seriously when he said that she was like evil at her core. Like, I don't think he meant that in the way that some people took it. I think what he's saying is like the taint of limbo that is inside this demonic thing that Belasco put in her. Is well, it's what he groomed her to be. Yeah. Yes. He made her complicit in his exactly. crimes. He, he turned her into a monster because, you know, he was going to sacrifice her to his elder gods and bring about the end of the world. Like that was his goal. And then she will be my queen who rules at my side or whatever. Exactly. You know, I, I think it's so interesting that they chose to portray Kitty Pride or Kat in this as, as older mm -hmm. because it kind of implies that she aged out of the desirable range for this abuser. Yes. She's like 20 now and he's not interested. Yeah, exactly. To me, this is sort of like the crux of what makes Ileana so deeply resonant and, and compelling as a character. The fact that, you know, she was groomed and she was abused and she was made to be this kind of monster and she still carries that around inside her, the dark child, the potential for horror to bring about hell on earth. 
she's now both. She's she's mm-hmm. girl monstering, if you've heard that phrase before. I do talk about girl bossing. I'm about to do a Valerie Cooper episode. And there's no bigger girl <laughs> boss than Valerie Cooper. I use girl boss as a pejorative. When I'm talking about Valerie Cooper, it's definitely, it's like simultaneous awe and also pejorative. It's like derogatory, yeah. but also like, you did the thing. You did that. <laughs> yeah, girl monstering <laughs> is like, you know, kind of a... A feminist thought of, about you know taking your your femininity and and weaponizing it, taking your identity mm-hmm. and becoming something dangerous. If you're girl monstering, you are owning everything dangerous about you, and that's all, what I've always thought about Ileana. You know, like she she owns it, who she is, and even the parts of herself that she hates and thinks makes her unworthy. When push comes to shove and her back is against the wall, she's so strong and she will fight for her friends uh, while at the same time thinking, I don't deserve any of them. It's heartbreaking and incredibly resonant. The horrible thing that's been done to her is also her source of strength. And there are times when I actually like wrote part of my bachelor's thesis on this. I was talking about Joss Whedon's tendency to do this. But there are times when women have to be sort of like broken down to become heroes in this genre. And I think that that is not necessarily a productive impulse. But I think that with this character, and it really comes through in Inferno in those Simonson issues. Like, yeah, absolutely. The survival is what makes her powerful. And it's not in a way where it's like... I couldn't have been a hero without this. It's that like, it makes me more of a hero that I am pushing through. Right. And the what makes this different from like male writers using rape as a kind of plot device, either right. further a male character story or to toughen up a female character. Like it's so hollow and inauthentic. But what makes this different is the fact that this is representation. If you're a survivor and you're reading this, then this is the story that's going to show you, like, you still belong. You're okay. You're not actually broken. You're not this monster that your abuser told you you were going to be. Like, that's that's what makes this difference. It's it's empathetic. And it comes from a place of knowledge. And that's why I cry every time I read that Inferno issue, honestly. Oh, same. I just started, like, tearing up thinking <laughs> about it again. When she saves her younger self, I have read the criticism that it's like the happy ending is that the trauma didn't happen, right? To save her, she has to be pure. But I don't see it that way. Because if you go back to the original mini, it's all about how Limbo is full of these alternate timelines that could go different ways. And just because this happened to Kat doesn't mean it has to happen to Kitty. What Ilyana decides is just because this happened to me doesn't mean it has to happen to every Ilyana. Yeah. And I think that that is powerful when rain says i mean i i dog on rain a lot on this podcast (laughs) it's been a rough 30 years for rain sinclair but (laughs) i loved her in the 80s and i do think that when she says like she was near the dark child she was a child of light in the end you know it's true though like when the armor breaks and she is this being of brilliant light it's demonic but it also is her i mean it's actually not unlike gene in the Morrison run. 
yeah, it's supposed to represent healing and catharsis. Jean's saying I am the phoenix and the phoenix is me. Ilyana's saying I am the dark child and the dark child is me. I think there's something very valuable in that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's healing and catharsis. It's it's about taking these parts of yourself that you've compartmentalized and reckoning with it and, and realizing like there is no undoing this. I only can become something more. Yes, exactly. Like this doesn't define me, but it is part of me. And that... I think is one of the most important things about the X-Men as a metaphorical fulcrum for all this stuff is like, I wouldn't take it back. And I think that that is what so many of these characters give to readers is the ability to understand that just because you are a survivor of violence or just because you are queer or a racial minority or any number of things that are not in your control. After talking to Jay Edidin on the Cyclops episode, I'm always thinking about the disability politics angles. Oh, yeah, that's my like, that's where I think the marginalization metaphor actually has the potential for something authentic. Yeah, I've said before, I think that it doesn't really work with race. Oh, it doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. Yeah, It's important to have characters of color in the franchise because otherwise it doesn't work, right? The queer analogy, I think, is more useful. I find it resonant on the Jewish level, which is sensical because it was Jewish people who created the metaphor. And I really think that the disability angle is smart. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that's that's exactly how I feel about it, too. There's nothing wrong with me just because I'm different from you. Exactly. And that's part of what I love so much about the Krakoan era, because Krakoa is a place that doesn't ask you to change. It asks what it can do to be more accessible to you. So that's what we see. That's how we see life on the island. It's adapt for every single inhabitant who who lives there. Yeah. I mean, last week's episode, well, last week, recording three episodes this week, so it's been a lot, but several weeks ago's episode was, um, was about skin from Generation X. And Terry Bloss and I talked about how there's like a critical moment in Gen X where this reality warping guy, Glorian, is like making all their dreams come true, but Skin doesn't wish for anything and he's frustrated. And Skin's like, look, I'm ugly and my power has made me an outcast and I hate my life, but it's my life and I don't want to live a lie. I want to live the life that I have. And that makes Glorian go like, hmm, maybe there's some value in that. And we talked about how Krakoa you know, that character's only had a couple cameos since coming back from the dead, but Krakoa is a place where that character wouldn't anymore feel like his life was shit. Yeah. And that he was just dealing with a bad hand. Now it's like, oh, if Cosmar needs a pick-me-up, she could talk to him because he's been through that. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many, there are so many characters who, I mean, I love last week's actual episode, when you're listening to this, will have been Celine, which is the Halloween episode. Mm. I'm fascinated by that character. I think she is one of the more evil characters in the franchise. But there's also the question of like, if your mutant power requires you to eat other people to survive, and that's something that has been happening to you since you were literally an infant, is that your fault? I mean, that's sort of the question of Hellions, right? Like the way that Zeb writes about Empath. If he's a sociopath because that happened to him because of this power that he was born with, is that something we should censure him for? Or is that something that we should try to help him deal with in a healthy way? Yeah. And it's also, then it opens up an interesting storytelling question from our perspective that becomes, well, how do we accommodate them? Right. How do we accept them? How do we make a life here for them? How do you make this person someone who can function in society in a way that's healthy for them and for the society that they can contribute to in positive ways if they're given the opportunity? Yeah. I think that's absolutely fascinating. 
I was thinking about the armor, actually, again. And so I'm a big Amanda Sefton fan. That's a side character that I've always found really engaging. And one of the things I think it hadn't really occurred to me before this conversation that we've been having, but when we were talking about the silver armor of the Dark Child, I started thinking about how when Amanda... When Ilyana's dead and Amanda takes over the throne of Limbo to try and keep it away from Belasco in that period, she starts to wear a costume that is based on that. But like she has to get a headdress that has horns on it because she doesn't have horns because this thing didn't happen to Amanda. Amanda is trying to fulfill this role, but she hasn't experienced this thing that Ilyana did that ties her really profoundly to the land. And so when Belasco returns, of course it takes Belasco like two days to kick Amanda out. And I think that there's something interesting about like when Amanda was magic, it was dress up. Yeah. And when Ilyana is in that armor, it's because that armor is part of her and she was forced to don it. It formed itself without her asking it to mystically around her body to protect her from the grasping hands of these demons. Amanda can appreciate that intellectually and can be like, I am magic now. I'm honoring her legacy. I'm wearing this outfit, but it's not, it doesn't connect on the same level. And that's why it didn't quite work and why it made sense that they got rid of it. But, you know, it's just one of those, one of those things that's really, I think, specific about this character and why it's so troubling when after she dies, the soul sword keeps calling to Kitty like it wants her. That calls back, of course, to Cat in the Magic Mini, the road not taken, right? Whenever we see a character who isn't Ilyana wearing that armor, it feels wrong because that armor is Ilyana's trauma response. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's a part of her. And when we see it on another character, it's a costume. Yeah, exactly. And the differentiation is very clear. Yeah, and I will say, like, when Amanda popped back up in Chris Claremont's Nightcrawler series in 2014 and she was wearing her Excalibur costume again, I was like, oh, thank God. Like, that's the character that like, yeah. she's supposed to be, you know? Like, and Ilyana's back where she's supposed to be, and that's great. The absence makes you understand how important the initial character was. And I think that sometimes that's what legacy heroes do. There are some legacy heroes where I'm like, I like this character better. Like, I would have let Renee Montoya be the question for the rest of my life. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> that's my favorite DC character. And when the New 52 happened, I quit reading DC because Renee wasn't the question anymore and I was out. Oh, never mind. Farewell. Now I have to go back to DC because Teeny's writing Catwoman. Yeah. And I got to read that. Oh, yeah, you do. It's going to be great. Well, and also, like, Steph Williams, friend of the pod, and Vita just put out Nubia, which I did pick mm -hmm. up because I was very excited about that. And that first issue was just fantastic. Oh, yeah. They've opened up, like, a whole new world of storytelling with Themyscira. It's going to be amazing. And they're doing the fucking work. Like, I know how hard it is in corporate comics to get... I don't have to tell you this, obviously, but I know how hard <laughs> it is labor to push the needle on queer yeah. and trans stuff. If you're not familiar, listeners, in Nubia and the Amazons, number one, one of the new Amazon characters is a trans woman. A black trans woman. And it's like, Steph is a black woman. Vita is a black trans person. They broke this story together. I just think it's really fucking important. And of course, there are already psychos who are like making mean videos or whatever. But guess what? Fuck them. Because you know what that is? That is small-minded people realizing that someone has produced important work that is going to broaden other minds and that frightens them. 
Of course. And they haven't even read the comic. What they're reacting to is just the presence of a black trans woman in Themyscira. And it's ridiculous. Because that's politics, right? Right. But the point is, like, it's a really good story. It's a really good it's a great comic. story. This isn't like some hollow gesture. This is the story. And it's great. And like, that's why you should read it. The fact that it it has amazing representation. It's a bonus. Is a part of the story. Yeah. One thing that I always really loved was her relationship with Kitty. You know, it's interesting, actually. That's another parallel with Rachel is they're both kind of raised by their version of Kitty. And then each of them, when they are thrust into our main timeline, find themselves, in Ileana's case, the same age, in Rachel's case, a couple years older, but peers with her. Plenty of people have talked about the homoeroticism of those relationships, and I agree, and it was something that made me feel seen as like a gay kid reading those Claremont comics. Oh, same, yeah. But I also just, there was something about them as like female, I mean, it's no wonder that Claremont pitched initially that X-Men True Friends thing way back as a thing about Kitty and Ilyana, and then later reconfigured it into a thing about Kitty and Rachel. I think that it's so important to see the viewpoint character, which Kitty is in most of those stories, juxtaposed with a character who is difficult, but who she loves. I think that that also contributes to the idea that Ilyana and Rachel are not broken. There's nothing wrong with them, even if they think that there is. Because the worst thing that Belasco does to Ilyana is convince her. That she's unworthy, that she's a monster. Yeah. Yeah. And she believes it. She really does. That is the lasting damage. I think that continues even after she comes back. I think it's a permanent fixture of her character. It's, yeah. it's what sets her apart. The fact that she does have this deeply honed internalized self-hatred that she's constantly trying to outrun through deeds like she's Mm -hmm. she's a protector even if she's doing it in like a feral way yeah and no matter how many people she saves like it never yeah is enough like you look at in the 80s it's like she saves danny's parents from the demon bear she saves kitty whenever the magic of limbo keeps trying to corrupt kitty because there's a sequence that i really love where the beyonder actually like cures Ilyana of her demonic infection he's like i'm omnipotent and i've taken it out of you like you're fine now but then the soul sword and the armor and stuff start popping onto kitty because they still exist and she's like the closest person and Ilyana is like, oh, I can't tolerate that. So I have to take this back. Yeah. That's why the Beyonder kills all the new mutants is because he's so offended that Ilyana refused his gift. She refused it because she's not going. It's a lot like what she does with the child Ilyana in Inferno. She's not going to let anyone else suffer what she has suffered if she can avoid it. And even when it comes to self-sacrifice, like if that's the choice, she'll make the same decision every time to put others before herself. The choice is I should go. I mean, that's also why she is so furious when Doug dies. They're all devastated, obviously, but most of them it's more like shock or sadness. And she is enraged. And you can tell that she's enraged in part because she's powerful enough to have 
thwarted it to have stopped yes. it. Yeah. And if she any of them it. could have stopped it, it was her. And also, if any of them was supposed to die, it should have been her. She thinks it was her. And I think she also looks at Doug as this kind of idealized version of he, he's so pure. He's Doug. He's pure. He's pure. If Belasco was into boys, he would have said the same thing about Doug. Exactly. So like she she sees you know, her, her former self, the, the one that was called little snowflake, she sees that in his innocence and his purity. And it just enrages her that she couldn't save him when she knows that she's empowered enough to have saved him. And then she finds out that when she teleported Piotr to Dallas, she led him directly to his death in that same event. There's that really, really incredible new mutants, but this is in the Simonson run. I feel like People, I've talked about this before. Again, don't have to tell you this, but women get it rougher with fans than any other writers on these books. And I do think that while Claremont's New Mutants is so distinctive and Simonson's has a couple weak stretches, like no one loves the bird brain arc. Like I don't think Wheezy would if we asked her about it. But there's a lot of really incredible stuff in there that I don't think gets enough praise. And one of those things is after fall of the mutants when she finds out forge was the one who cast the spell and she goes and confronts him and they have this like magical fight and the thing about forge is forge spends all of his life trying to not do any magic because like he is this adept of his tribe but he has no interest in that he wants to like invent sciency things he's rejected his identity so profoundly that he calls himself forge and we've still never learned his real name to this day right yeah when she confronts him he says there are other magics dark child as ancient and as powerful she says, you fight well, shaman. Why didn't you fight this well against the adversary? Why did you let my brother die? And he says, he said his little sister brought him to Dallas and I didn't understand. You teleported him there into harm's way. And she screams, shut up. She is about to kill him because she does prevail. She is stronger than him. And she is going to kill him. And it's Danny who manages to talk her down because she pulls out of Ilyana's mind the thing that Ilyana fears the most. And it is herself completely lost to the dark child. And Ilyana realizes that looks a lot like I look right at this very second. So I need to stop right now. So for the listeners, I've just been sitting here like nodding my head the entire time <laughs> he was speaking. Like, yes. It's just, it's, it's so good. Like she just, there's something that, I mean, again, to go to the disability angle for a second, you know, I am not a survivor of child abuse, but I am someone who grapples with mental illness. The way that she thinks about herself, I, mean, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. And the worst part of obsessive compulsive disorder, in my opinion, is the intrusive thoughts that you have that are violent or crazy or random that just like, you're like, why did I have that thought? And then you immediately go to, I had that thought because I'm a bad person. And that's the thing that like your therapist tells you like, no, actually that's like a synapse misfiring in your brain because you don't uptake serotonin correctly. And it's like not, you know, but you're like, well, why did I just like think about hurting someone? It's like, do I want to do that? And that's sort of Ilyana's whole 
thing is it's like, is this something I want? Like, am I this person at core? And I think that what is most remarkable about her is that at every turn, she strives not to be that. She tries to prove that that isn't who she is. And I find that very, very relatable. Oh, yeah. It's indicated in her actions time and time again. It's it's one of the most important tenets of her character, striving to do the right thing, no matter what the right thing may be, even if it's self-sacrifice, even if it hurts, even if it's the hard thing to do, she still does it. And she kind of tries to drown out her internal demons. Yeah. I do think that in recent years, she's been less sharp and I would like to see more of that I do feel like since the Bendis like rebrand she's kind of been on like a a shimbo uh, yeah she's like a jock now I just and I'm just sort of like that's fine but I I like when there is more of a darkness to the character when that is really something she's grappling with all the time oh yeah and that'll definitely come back I'm very excited to see what Vita is going to do with yeah yeah absolutely magic's one of those characters that is you know, also fascinating from the fact that they're constantly banking their power so as not to be a danger to others. Yes. Like I, I'm obsessed with characters like this, like Magic, North Star, Jubilee is another one. Mm-hmm. Like constantly, you know, making sure that their power level stays down. Well, at a nice, Wanda, safe who you're range. now writing about, is Wanda, obviously the ultimate yeah. example of that, right? Oh, it's yeah. Like yeah. if I let my power go out of control, really bad things happen. I always do find that compelling. I mean, that's what's compelling about Jean Grey as the Phoenix, right? Like in the classic arc, she's trying to hold back. There's that great bit when Jean like is in the Macron crystal back way back in the 70s at this point. But she starts to take life force from Corsair and Storm because they offer it to her to do it. And she's like, yes. And she becomes this like hissing ghost creature as she's doing it, and then she's like, okay, I have to stop. I have to stop. I have to stop. I have to stop because I will kill you. I will kill you and I will enjoy doing it. And I have to stop. That's the kind of stuff I find really interesting because I think that in worlds like this where superheroes exist, where these great powers exist, I mean, it's why Superman can be compelling, right? It's the world of cardboard thing is like the speech that he gives in the cartoon where it's like, I have to hold back my strength all the time because the world around me is made of cardboard and I could rip it to pieces. Yeah. Ilyana is like that also. And I would like to see her more tempted in the way that she was in the past. Yeah, because this is like not some, you know, metaphorical reading that we're taking. This is textual. This is real. Like what the Dark Child represents is her capacity to unleash hell on earth at any time. All it takes is her willingness. She just has to have a bad day. Right. Like the one thing standing between life on earth and total annihilation her willpower. Yeah. And I think that that's something people are very drawn to with the characters. So I'm just very excited. I mean, I would trust Vita to write just about anybody. Listen, if you can make the Shadow King a three-dimensional character, you can do just about anything in my book. Exactly, exactly. Vita's got great plans. Oh, another thing we should also talk about with regards to magic is the teleportation. Yeah. Because we haven't touched on that yet. We've been in like demons and sorcery. But what I find like most compelling about the teleportation ability, like that's her mutant ability. That's fascinating to me. That's her mutant ability. And I I agree. I think it's fascinating. And the way that we used it in What If Magic is this is her escape from her abuser. Like Mm -hmm. who wouldn't love to be able to teleport themselves away from a dangerous situation at any given time. So the moment 
Like this is how she escapes. The moment that her mutant ability manifests when she's in limbo, she's out of there. She's gone. She can't go home because she's aged so much. She goes back to her parents and they don't recognize her. They don't recognize her and they just think it's this crazy girl. Trying to trick them in some way. and they Right, because meanwhile, their little girl... They're just like, she's six, actually. So I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, this like 14, 15 year old girl shows up at the door saying, I'm your daughter. And then the parents are like, actually, our daughter's six. So they think that she's, you know, crazy. She can't go home. And that's why she ends up as like a teenage runaway. Right. Which is made all the more difficult because she has, you know, huge capacity for sorcery on top of a mutant ability of, you know, creating the the stepping discs, the teleportation right. circles. And it makes her impossible to track <laughs> without magic. My fascination with the stepping disc ability is the chicken or egg question of it. Her mutant power is to control the stepping discs of limbo specifically. That's very strange. I mean, you can rationalize it in the Marvel Universe by saying that magic in the Marvel Universe is a form of energy production like any other. It's just a specific kind of thing. Wanda, when she was a mutant, had a mutant connection to chaos magic that was inborn. So you can wave that off a little bit. But my question is always, is that how her power manifested because she was in limbo and needed to escape? Or... Did she fall into limbo in the first place and was Belasco drawn to her in the first place because she was fated to have that power? I'm interested in the former. Like, I I love the idea uh, that it becomes, you know, a nature versus nurture uh, kind of argument where her mutant ability manifested differently because she was in limbo. If that had never happened, there would have been a different outcome. I like the possibility of that. I like that she can't know. I think that that is part of the character's tension is like, am I a creature of limbo or not? Is this something that always was true of me before I ever met Belasco? You know, like there is that question. But I think that, you know, we talked about how Emma's diamond secondary mutation arose to protect her in the genocide of Genosha. Similarly, we've seen characters like Skids who actually Skid's power manifested because her father was abusive and killed her mother and she manifested her force field to protect herself. Yeah. So there are examples of that happening. I wasn't crazy about the Sapna arc in the IVX era just because I felt like Ilyana was too nice. This is my one thing with her is like when she's not mean enough, I'm like, mm, not sure that that works for me. But she's got a very dry sense of humor. Yeah. Like when she's nurturing, I'm just like, that's not correct. Like, that's not really who she is. You know what I mean? But, but Sapna is also like five years old, you know? Yes. It's a lot like an Inferno callback, right? She sees herself right. as like a child who went through this. And Ileana is trying to make it as not traumatic as possible. Right. And of course, it goes very, very awry. One thing that I think is interesting is there, it's very explicitly said that Sapna was going to evolve a, like she would have manifested a linguistic mutation, maybe akin to Doug's. But because she was in limbo at the time, she's specifically attuned to demonic languages. And that felt to me like a little bit of an answer to the Ilyana question, which is like maybe she would have manifested a general teleportation ability, but because she was in limbo and she was just so desperately trying to get out, yeah, she accessed the discs. Yeah, and now she has to use limbo as like, And now she's stuck that way. Like she can't the, the teleport meaty, any other way. Right. The the middle ground. It you mm-hmm. know 
in going from point A to point C, the desired like location, there's limbo is point B, which is limbo, right? I love that moment in the mini toward the end of the original Magic mini where the New Mutants suddenly appear in their car in limbo, and she's and they're like, "That's Ilyana, but she's so young," and she's like, "Who are these people?" And then the following story when she teleports the New Mutants. She realizes she has to take them through limbo, and we realize that's what happened. It's just like yeah. a great bit of. I will say, I I've said many times in this podcast, I am too gay to understand time travel. However, <laughs> this is Rachel's problem. Rachel would have gone to the right timeline, but she was too gay to understand time travel. <laughs> Cable is bi, so he can sort of make it work. The point is, Claremont, I think, always makes it really legible and that's a great example where that's something that's going to happen because you are never really getting out of limbo Ilyana even these friends you're about to make who you haven't met yet you're gonna bring them here you can never really get out of here and so the question is do you utilize that connection to make yourself powerful and to make yourself someone who can protect others or do you wallow in it? She chooses the power. Yeah. And I think there's something very cool there. You know, we're supposed to see it, and it is to some degree, but we're supposed to see it as a tragedy that she makes the soul sword instead of doing what Sorceress Aurora does with all her white magic and whatnot. But Sorceress Aurora dies like a punk, frankly. Well, it's also because like, <laughs> so here's, and this is very much um, represented in What If Magic, the, the dichotomy between Aurora's magic and Ileana's magic is the fact that Ileana has been groomed for years for destructive magic, for destructive yes. forces, nothing she else. Can't Aurora has creation magic. So there's a reason why, you know, Ileana's magic does not manifest in the same way that it works for Aurora. She can't make that acorn. It explodes. She has no, no creation magic except for like a tool to her. To create a weapon of vengeance. Right. Yeah. Like that's it. And it's, it's still a form of empowerment for her. Like it's, it's hers. It's an extension of her. Yeah. Are there any more recent magic stories that you really, really love? Like we were talking so much about the classic stuff, but like the stuff where she has her little Kirby hat horns on and the <laughs> Bachalo titty top. It's actually, to be fair to Chris Bachalo, it's not the full titty top, like Lady Mastermind style. It's the, it's just got a, like a boob window, which is much more. Like a cutout. Yeah. Well, and that's actually something that is worth talking about briefly is just like that Ilyana does dress very provocatively even when she's a teenager. And I've always found that interesting. She's more sexually forward than the other characters in that book, except it's all kind of a posture because she has no, she doesn't actually pursue anyone romantically or sexually. And to me, that also helps underline the, I mean, you know, this isn't to say it's true of everyone, but that is something psychologists talk about a lot as like a response to childhood sexual abuse. Well, yeah, because you've been groomed to understand that this is your value, that this is, you know, the expected output of you. So wearing that as a costume in order to, you know, elicit a certain response from people and um, engage with like a certain set of expectations, I think is very much tactical on her part. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to wear hot pants, but you can't touch me. 
Right, exactly. Emma does something similar, and Emma is also a survivor of sexual abuse as a young woman. But with Emma, it actually is sexual. Yes, very much. It's provocative in a different kind of way. With Ileana, it's like an anglerfish glinting at you from the deep. Like, <laughs> she is daring you to touch her. And with Emma, it's it's an unraveling thing. You with know? Emma, I think she's taunting you that you can't. Oh, right. And, you know, people are like, clear as as water to her she can see right through them see their every thought and it makes things so much easier for her to to read and manipulate if they want her well that's a thing about Eliana too is that because of what happened to her with Belasco this is an important plot point in the 80s psychics can't read her mind that's actually why I think she bonds with Magneto in a way she never did with Charles, because I think that Charles is very perturbed by a person he can't read. Because he's a piece of shit. <laughs> well, he's similarly perturbed by Madeline Pryor, who he can't read for reasons yeah. he can't figure out. But meanwhile, it's like, okay, they're traumatized, Charles. Can you stay out of their head? Like, that's Yeah, why. Madeline's like, I don't know, I was the only survivor of a fiery plane crash where I was the pilot, as far as she remembers, that's true. And he's just like, well, I can't read your mind. That's mysterious. It's like, why are you trying to read her mind? You just met this woman. There's no yeah, reason like, to be doing that. Get out of there, <laughs> fucking weirdo. I hate Charles. <laughs> I know clear. I really hate Charles. <laughs> you should listen to the episode that Spencer Ackerman and I did on him. It's quite the... Uh, we try to understand him, but I wouldn't say we're kind. To go back to what we were saying, are there any like really recent stories that you, and not necessarily Krakoa era stuff. We talked about Zeb Wells, but like, what did you think of the Bendis era stuff? I thought it was fun, but I what, it, what I took away most from the Bendis era were the Emma moments. That's so funny. Cause that's, I didn't, I didn't like his Emma. That was like an issue for me with that run. Yeah. But like the duffel bag of money in the closet and that her sleeping okay. like a toddler. Okay. See, I, 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 I mean, Chris Anka drew that beautifully, but I was just sort of like, Emma would never let anyone see her like this. I don't know. She would never wear that. No, but like, <laughs> like she sleeps in like a full teddy, like, you know, oh, yeah, like... yeah, completely. If anything at all. Yeah. If anything. Right. Exactly. Actually, now's a great time, I think, to get into the questions because that leads us to a great question. Zach Jenkins of Comics XF and Battle of the Atom, who gave me your email address when I was trying to get a hold of you. So shout out to Zach, although he did spell my name incorrectly again. Zach, we've talked about this <laughs> several times. Zach Jenkins writes, hey, Connor with an E, Leah. There's a lot to talk about with magic, but specifically I want to talk about her big ass sword. What are our feelings about it being a small traditional blade versus a Final Fantasy looking monster of a thing? Should it be able to actually cut things or just be a weird magical sword? It's been used to represent her destructive tendencies and famously was replaced by a staff in What If Magic by some talented writer. Do you think there's a version of Yana in the 616 that could put her anger away and become a force of creation with a staff instead of a sword? Stay golden, Zach J. And then Jeremy Gould wrote, Hey Connor and Leah, do you prefer magic having a regular soul sword or a giant one? I personally prefer the giant version since I was raised in a healthy diet of anime and am a degenerate. I'm curious as to your thoughts. Love your podcast. My thought initially is I'm very resistant to the big soul sword. I don't like it as much. And I think that it sort of exemplifies my like unease about like modern magic is that she feels very very Final Fantasy to me like just and I like Final Fantasy but she just feels sort of like she's running in with the big like I liked her when she was sort of more tactical and sneaky and not a physical powerhouse sure so to but speak. It, it might help you to 
you know, warm up to the big ass sword a bit more. If you think about it in terms of like, what is informing this from her perspective of like a traumatized person who went through like child abuse, well, what is a child going to invoke in order to protect That's themselves? True. A fucking big ass sword, you know? Big as it can get. It's not going to be nuanced. It's going to be like <laughs> a giant fucking weapon, you know? I, I think that if things were different, she would be, sure, like dual wielding rogue. She'd have two daggers and she'd be super Sure, sneaky. sure. I liked the like fiery classic soul sword that was like sort of a long sword that was on fire. And I miss that. That's all. As opposed to like the cloud strife Final Fantasy VII moment that she's been doing for a long time now. So what's the basis of the fire sword? Like, why are you more drawn to that? Why is it more resonant? What worked and not just the appearance, but what worked about it for you? I think it felt unique to her. The sword that she uses now, I feel like I've seen a lot of characters wield a sword like that. And I feel like her sword, I mean, I, I don't love it in the very beginning of New Mutants when it's just a lightsaber. That's not, <laughs> but I liked how it sort of evolved into like kind of a fantasy weapon. But you know, I'm clearly in the minority because there are millions of people out there now with big honk and soul sword tattoos and she's more popular than she's ever been. So it was clearly a good design choice. I just, I didn't quite jump out to me as the sword I liked best, but she clearly likes it best. And that's what matters at the end of the day, right? And keep in mind too, people change as they grow up. Their soul takes a different shape as they come into being. So there's nothing, you know, that says, the giant big ass sword that her like child psyche created is going to remain that way forever. Sure. It, it could become more, more nuanced or on fire over time. If that's any consolation. I think in Empire it did for a second when you had her put that armor back on. Yeah, it was because it's something that I like associate with that era and, you know, more of the dark child stuff. Like I, I see it as the next evolution of the big ass sword, the big ass fire sword. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about Zach's question about the staff? Do you think Ilyana in this timeline could get to that place of creation? Because we were just talking about how Aurora is a creator and she's a destroyer. I don't really think she could. I don't think so either. And it goes back to what we were talking about with like nature versus nurture. It's a staff because it is an alternate timeline where she is being you know, supported by uh, Dr. Strange and um, she's processing all of this awful stuff and also confronting her abuser. Yeah. And that is pivotal to why she creates the staff. It's an alternate timeline that I think could not happen in 616. It's not how her confrontations with Belasco have gone right. in this timeline. And I think that you need the liberatory moment that she has in What If Magic, which is born from her relationship with Strange and is not something that she gets from Charles because Charles is not equipped or from Eric because Eric doesn't know how to be a father, honestly. And he doesn't know magic. I mean, sorcery, like he, he knows Iliana, like he literally does not know sorcery or the arcane arts. So he cannot provide support for her in this way. And it is something that she's lacking in our timeline. And at that time, the person Eric would have consulted would have been Celine and that wouldn't have been good for anybody. So exactly. It's, it's probably good that he didn't. Patrick Beekman writes, hi, Connor and Leah. I'm so excited for this episode as Ilyana has been my favorite character since the age of eight. I don't even want to do the math on how many years that has been. 
As a closeted queer kid growing up in a Southern Baptist house, I felt especially drawn to magic as a character, that constant struggle to be good, even though a really intrinsic part of yourself is considered evil. The hiding, the crying, the bargaining, and repenting, it all seemed like an amped up version of my daily struggle as a kid. In the magic miniseries, alternate Storm tries to convince her that the sorcery is not evil of itself, in of itself. It's all about intent. Magneto and Ileana even bond over the whole doing the wrong thing for the right reasons conundrum. We see her sacrifice herself and her goodness over and over throughout publication. My question is, do y'all think that there's ever a way to resolve that issue for her in an interesting way? Can she ever become a sorceress of light more intent on creation than destruction and still be compelling? Or is her scary nature, dark humor, and violent tactics while trying to be good what makes her work as a character? Sorry that was really long. This podcast means so much to me. Love hearing my favorite characters talked about through a queer lens and hearing from creators who are there in the trenches. So we just touched on this a little bit, but I think that this is a slightly different angle. Well, first of all, I just want to tell Patrick that I completely empathize with the experience of like growing up in, you know, a conservative area. I grew up in Mississippi and I was bi without knowing that I was bi. And when you are queer and you don't have access to any sort of representation or resources about this, you just think you're monstrous. That's it. That's, that's how you live. So I, I deeply empathize with that and, um, you know, grew up feeling monstrous my, my whole life. And it's, um, something that is deeply resonant about Ileana in particular, because she's othered herself for it. Like she, she holds herself apart from the rest of the new mutant, new mutants because of this potential capacity for evil. And I can see her being able to perform feats of light magic because she is so adept and powerful with sorcery, but it is not an intrinsic part of her identity because of the way that she was raised and what she's been through. She can expand to accommodate it, but there's never going to be a clean switch from dark to light, in my opinion. I agree. And I think that it is in part what makes the character compelling. And I think that yes. resolving that tension to the character would be a mistake. Yeah. I think that she can embrace that part of herself without doing away with it. Because I think, do I mean, this is how I feel about Jean and the Phoenix. I've said this many times. I think that rejecting the part of yourself that makes you feel monstrous is not healthy. I also don't think it's a healthy message to send to readers of like, right, exactly. we're, we're going to cure magic of everything that makes her different or wrong. And she's going to be like a light witch now. I don't think that that's, you know, what we, we want to be saying as, as X-Men writers, we want to be saying, this is who she is, accept her or get fucked. To go back to what I was saying about Ilyana versus Amanda, I think that that's part of why Amanda's rule over Limbo was doomed to fail in the end, because the winding way that Margali and Amanda practice is a much more balanced kind of magic. They're doing creative stuff at the same time that they're doing destructive stuff. Ilyana is the magic of Limbo. It's intrinsic to her. It infuses her every pore. I mean, she's a lot like Madeline that way, which is why I'm interested to see what Vita does with the two of them. But I think that to get too far away from that would be to get away from what makes the character unique. And I think that would be a mistake. Yeah, I, I do think that it's it's intrinsic to magic's personality and identity too. And even if her power source is centered in destructive magic, destruction is not inherently evil. 
it is natural. Decay is natural. And it's all a matter of how you wield it. And because, you know, she's magic and she, she wants to be good and do good. She's going to make those choices over and over again, instead of choosing to hurt and harm. Well, needlessly hurt and harm. She hurts. Right. And harms yeah. So she good. hurts when she hurts right. when people need to get hurt. For it's sure. why we love her. Yes. Rubot writes, hi, Connor and Leah. Leah, I'm so excited you're joining Connor and Cerebro. Your work in the X universe has been so wonderful to read with many issues being instant favorites of mine, particularly Blob's iconic scene in the Age of X-Men. And of course, your what if magic story. Connor, you know how much I appreciate you and the pod. So enough said. Well, thank you, Ru. That's sweet. On to my question. I've always been fascinated by magic as a kid. And this was well before I learned much later that she starred in a series with my number one, Storm, in the 80s. My question pertains to that. Given that magic had such a strong connection to the storm that was in limbo, why do you think there haven't been any efforts from her to create a relationship with Aurora's 616 counterpart? Rose's magic abilities are rarely brought up, except by Claremont, but I'm surprised he didn't even try to create some sort of relationship in our universe. Regardless, for anyone who loves magic, writers included, they know about this relationship. So I'm wondering why, to my recollection, Ilyana's never bothered to bring it up. Very curious as to your thoughts. Yours truly, Rubot. Well, it's not the same storm. Right. This this Aurora doesn't have the trauma inflicted by Belasco. Yeah, she hasn't been tainted in the same way Ilyana was by Belasco, which is what bonds Ilyana and Aurora. Right, exactly. Limbo. And and there is no putting Storm in this role that she can't fit into as someone who never experienced it. And I'm sure that magic respects that and she isn't going to like project, you know, her and, and that, that Aurora doesn't exist anymore. That Aurora died. So like magic has grieved. She has mourned this mm -hmm. person and she's not going to project her grief onto, you know, a living avatar of, of her past because, you know, our storm doesn't, she knows that storm doesn't deserve that and, and is her own person with her own experiences. Yeah, and I actually think that if they weren't forced together and if Kitty didn't pursue it, that Ilyana wouldn't necessarily have pursued a friendship with Kitty either in the in that same way because of what she went through with Kat. Oh, totally, yeah. Charles puts them together in a room, like, you're roommates now. Never mind the fact that this one looks like, you know... To be fair, he doesn't know that and he can't read her mind, which is how he decides things about people. So he's just like, well, all right. But yeah, it's not it's not great. There is an incredible scene in Inferno in that Simonson issue where we get to see the new mutants, particularly Rain, react to Ilyana's childhood, where Ilyana finds Kat's skull and picks it up and like holds it in front of her face and explains what happened to Kat. And it's clear to me that she's compartmentalized Kat and Kitty into different people. Oh, completely. Yeah. I think that she's done the same thing with the Aurora she knew in Limbo and with Storm of the X-Men. They're yes. just, they're not the same person. I totally agree. And I think that also she chooses Belasco in Limbo over Storm, at least initially. Like, and it's because she's been groomed in this way. Like it's not, she's a child, but I'm saying, I think that she feels that she every time she looks at storm she's reminded she's of reminded that of that yeah. choice and i think that it would distress her to be in too close quarters with that person very often. yeah i think so too I, and that's not to say that they would never have any type of you know close-knit relationship right. but it's never going to resemble what it did in limbo and nor should it because they're different people they're different people yeah Aurora's not 65 and Ilyana's not sick. And this Aurora hasn't been through any of those same things. So right. it's just a very different person. 
Keith Amaral writes, hello, Connor and Leah. First, the obligatory and absolutely true facts. Thank you, Connor, for creating the absolute best thing to ever be created. <laughs> thank you. That's very kind. Next, Leah, thank you for creating many of my favorite comics in recent history. Your Wanda narration in Trial of Magneto number one about loss was truly one of the rare moments where I had to stop reading a comic and ponder. It absolutely shook me to my core, and thank you for that moment of feeling during a time when I've become numb to a lot. My question about magic came to me after finishing the great Cerebro episode on Cable. Venetiasa Capullo X-Force is one of my favorites, and his magic is one of my favorite mutants. I often lament the fact that she wasn't around in those X-Force years. What do you think the influence, if any, of having Cable around would have meant for magic? We seem to think of Cable as being a low-key solid father figure in the lives of these young mutants. And with all the trauma Ileana endured as a child, would she have benefited from someone like Cable? Can she still benefit from Cable? I'm not so sure she's had anything resembling her other new mutants teammates transition into young adulthood, assuming she's still around their same age. Don't worry about that. We don't worry about ages on this podcast. <laughs> Yes. I need to get in on that Zeb Wells New Mutants run as I'm sketchy about the details of her return. I'd love Leah to write a book called My Two Dads featuring Magic Cable and Doctor Strange. <laughs> With Strange being Ileana's magic dad and Cable being her militant dad. That's a funny idea. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's an interesting question. If Ileana is an interesting question. The cable era. I, I would also, you know, refer back to her relationship with Magneto as, yeah. you know, a, a good way to inform the possibilities of what it would be like with Cable. I mean, I'm thinking about like more recent comics and the fact that she potentially has a stronger relationship with young Cable than she does um, older Cable just because their paths have crossed. Yeah story-wise more often than not while young cables around and uh, as far as you know older cable goes he definitely would have had a positive influence on her um as somebody who's you know like stable and and grounded in a way that she doesn't often have access to in guardians and and kind of older mentor figures in her life and i also think that it would have been an interesting exploration of her teleportation abilities, the the potential crossover between Cable's powers and her powers and the yeah. way that they, you know, can interact with each other Move through time. It opens up a lot of really interesting possibilities. Yeah, I think that Domino would have been a really useful person for Ileana to know in that like the domino of 90s x-force who i think is kind of becomes the mom to those kids in the same way that cable becomes the dad to those sure and domino also has like a really rough upbringing and trauma in her past too and she has also come out of it um Mm -hmm. and and worked on herself and healing so i think that would also benefit Ileana. What you mentioned about Young Cable is interesting because one of the things I can't stop thinking about now is the fact that Cable met all of these people when he was a teenager before he ever met them as their mentor in the 80s, which is a retcon, obviously, but it colors a lot of those old stories in the same way that the Moira retcon does in ways that I find really interesting. And one of the things I can't help but think is that when Cable met the New Mutants when he was in his 40s or whatever... I wonder if he was disappointed that Ileana wasn't there. Yeah, (laughs) I bet he was. I I I love that it's additive that, you know, this this doesn't detract anything from the older stories. It just kind of adds new possibilities that can be applied. The only thing that's tricky is like in those old stories, he didn't know that he and Strife were identical and now he definitely should. But I'm chalking that up to like blacksmith mess with the timeline. Don't worry about it. Because the thing about time travel is 
the future changes all the time. I mean, I think that's what Jerry's Cable Solar really emphasized in a way that I thought was useful because we spend a lot of time as fans going like, how did this affect the future time? Like all of the time travel stuff. And it's like, the answer is if you travel through time and you start futzing with stuff, when you go back to the future that you came from, things are going to be different potentially. Yeah, the only reason that didn't effect. happen for Rachel is because she hopped into the wrong reality because again, she was too gay to understand time travel. <laughs> That's not her fault. That's just a problem that we all have. It's just a fact of life. Yeah. I think that if Simonson had not been pushed out of the book, she probably, I mean, she has said she would have eventually brought Ilyana back because she left a back door open in Inferno. That's obviously a very path not taken because we don't know, without Liefeld plotting that book, we have no idea where it would have gone at the, you know, in the transition. Yeah. But it would have been interesting. I've been rereading some of that Simonson era cable stuff recently because I did the cable episode and her take on him is also really interesting to me because it's different from the Liefeld Nisiesa take that you get shortly thereafter. Uh, and I would have been interested to see that. I mean, she said recently in an interview, she was like, I'm shocked no one brought her back for so long because there were two of her. I gave it to you, right? And like, you could very easily bring back the one that was a teen. They were on panel at the same time. You don't see her die. I think it worked out for the best because I think that Ilyana dying in Inferno is important to the character. I think the fact that it is a genuine self-sacrifice is important to the character. And uh, I am glad that she's back. But to me, it's a lot like Mother Iscani with Rachel, where I'm like, I'm oh, glad yeah. Rachel's back. But I think that Mother Iscani is a really important story. You yeah, know? yeah, completely. Bruno Mael writes, hey, Connor and Leah. First of all, congrats to Connor on season two of the podcast. So excited for these next episodes. After 50 episodes, I finally got to write an email in time and not just a mental note or draft that I forget until the actual episode comes out. LMAO. Thank you, Leah, for your X Factor run. It was really special to me as a bi man and an X fan. I loved spending time with some of my favorite mutants like David and Rachel and also connecting with characters I never cared about before, like Jean-Paul, Akihiro, or Lorna. But now I do. Sad to see it end, but at least Trial of Magneto has been great as well, and fellow Brazilian Lucas Vernex art is just divine. What if magic was also great, and I was shocked to find out that you and Philippe Andrade did it. I read it when it came out, and now three years later, you two are some of my favorite creators in comics. Now, for the actual question. What did you think about Anya Taylor-Joy's Ilyana from the 2018 slash 2019 slash 2020 New Mutants movie? That's a funny way to put it. It was probably the best casting for the time, but I think they tried a little hard to fit the 2010's Ilyana into an 80s New Mutants cast, and that made her come across like an edgy teenager who bullies people. I get they were trying to go for a John Bender vibe, but the movie managed to get Ilyana and the most popular Breakfast Club character wrong. Love the podcast. Looking forward to more. Please come to Brazil. LMAO. I had to do it. I'd love to come to Brazil. What did you think of that movie? I The movie is a piece of shit, but yeah, I will not bad. fault the casting. The casting no, casting's it, great. It should have been a home run, but the like the film on her first, to be clear, the casting on her is great. Divine. Some of the other like, characters could have been perfect. Um, yeah. But they they fucked up that movie beyond all recognition. And it's only the fault of like the the two main guys, the the director, that director writer, who, yeah, who, I mean, the, I don't even remember his name. I just remember the incredibly racist interview he gave about Sunspot. <laughs> oh, I, I thought you were going to say the racist interview he gave about Storm. Did you know that they were going to make they, her- Was that Storm was going to be the Cecilia Reyes character before they made- the, yeah. A jailer. Yeah. 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 Like, anyway. Anyway. The studios brought in um, 
script doctors, yeah, uh, like famous ones to help fix how poorly it was written. That's why it's the 2018 slash 2019. They had to do massive reshoots on that movie and they still couldn't save it. And well, because this guy would revise it to satisfy the studios and then change it back. Yeah, his vision, his shitty vision of it. So that's why it turned out so fucking terrible because this guy was really committed to his own mediocrity and his own like (laughs) maintaining the sanctity of his artistic vision at any cost, including quality. So he made a piece of shit film because he doesn't care about the source material, doesn't care about the characters, doesn't care about the story just cared about his like fucking adobe after effects special powers like (laughs) i hated it i hated it so much and it made me so angry because anya taylor joy like she would have stolen the spotlight like one of the best actresses of her generation right it looks exactly like Ilya. That should have been her queen's gambit, you know? Yeah. The moment where suddenly she became a household name, that should have been it. And that also should have been like a magic origin story, you know? Like that it Yeah, I know I'm that still angry they're probably I know Disney's probably resistant to reuse actors from the Fox franchise, which I understand, but that's one where I would let them take a mulligan. Like just do it again. Let her do yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, just do it. Like when are you going to find casting that great again? I also think she would be very, very good as the Stepford Cuckoos if they want. Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 And she has the chops to play all those different characters like Tatiana Maslany style. She would be good at that. But she's such a perfect Ilyana that it was very frustrating to me. There are a lot of things in that movie that are so close. Like, actually, I think the guy they cast as Sunspot is great as that character. Unfortunately, he's not black. So that's a problem. Yeah. That's just a core problem. But the performance is good like and also the queer rep like the queer they, stuff is great it's great danny moonstar kissing girls thank you that's all i've wanted for like 30 years so love to see it but it's a bad movie it's a bad movie oh and i will say like one thing i liked also though was that it, it was very textual about Ilyana is a child sex abuse survivor that's her deal but the way because they had to take out all the supernatural stuff it became i thought more lurid yeah it did and it instead of it i'm glad you you caught that but you know it was not it wasn't good right right and and it became the thing that we were talking about earlier about when this stuff is told incorrectly when it feels kind of cheap and like it's for shock value instead of being um something that's explored through an empathetic and sensitive lens of how it affects somebody Right. Like saying this character was sex trafficked. Isn't that crazy? Like that's not the same. It makes thing her as... unhinged and dangerous. Right. Like, okay, we haven't seen that a fucking million times I mean, times speaking before. of hating Charles, I've talked at length on this podcast about how Charles sex trafficking Tessa to the Hellfire Club when she was a teenager is one of the worst things he's ever done. And I think that Sage is a character you could do a lot of really fascinating stuff on that score with. And I think that Ben Percy in that issue where she talks about her drinking problem that's the way that you explore these themes you don't go exactly you don't have her talk about like well when i was 17 charles shipped me off to be a sex slave you you can have her confront him about it but you don't do it like let's peer into that in a way that feels voyeuristic in a way that is going to hurt people who share these experiences and are reading this comic right you do not want to like weaponize the idea of pain in a way that is going to hurt your readers 
Yeah. Well, I mean, two weeks ago, we talked about Siren and the baby plot in X Factor Investigations. And that's, I mean, obviously, Siren's a character you care a lot about because you just did a lot of work to rehab that character in X Factor, honestly. One of the things that I talked about in that episode was like, I found it irresponsible to handle stillbirth metaphorically in that way. Because I, I, people are going to read this comic who that's happened to. It shouldn't be a surprise twist that's like a wacky twist you know oh 100 but that was the time that's what they were doing a lot of back then it was almost 20 years ago and you know that'll happen gabriel muller writes oi connor and leah my question is about Ilyana and her increasing standout presence in and outside comics recently now even starring in video games with the avengers for a character that was dead for decades this is a big change what do you think caused this direction to the character do you think it's detrimental to her previous characterization as a more amoral character for her to be this mainstream hero or do you think it could fit as her growing out of that and finally should Ilyana become the at this time not announced sorcerer supreme of 616 as she is one of steven's more recent apprentices thank you for your time and a great inferno for both of you so I've had these questions open for a while. We now know that Dr. Strange is replacing Dr. Strange as the Sorcerer Supreme. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about it. This is not a Dr. Strange podcast. She is the Sorcerer Supreme of Limbo, though, and always has been since she was introduced. So, you know, she is a Sorcerer Supreme. I love that you wrote out 616 in letters because you get where <laughs> Tini and I are coming from and you are on the right side of history. Thank you, Gabriel. I think this is a great question because she has kind of become like the blonde Wolverine. Like, she's everywhere. You can't escape magic at this point. And it is fascinating because she was dead for God, like, over a decade. Yeah, and it's like what you and I were talking about earlier, how her rise to stardom happened fast. Like... Very quick. Compared to other characters, you know, who... It, it takes them decades upon decades for this to happen. It With magic, it happened so fast, comparatively. I, I would argue that she's not like a clean cut hero now still. I think that she's always going to like Emma Frost, like North Star, like all of my other favorite characters. <laughs> she's going to exist in this kind of gray area where things are nuanced, things are complicated. She she wants to to do good and be good, but recognizes her capacity for massive destruction, like on a huge scale. So it's something that she's constantly contending with. I think it makes her fascinating as a heroic figure because like, she's going to be grappling with that all the time. Yeah. What was the question? I forgot. Uh, no, it was just like, <laughs> it was just more like, what do you guys think caused that? Oh, I think it's a couple things. I think that the Bachalo design really hit with people. Yes. I think the big anime soul sword, while it's yep. not my favorite, as we got, people love it. And I get that. They turned her into an anime character. And it, not in the way I've said that I think Surge from Academy X was really hurt by being like a very of her time kind of anime character in the design aesthetic, which I think has held her back. Because I think like Longshot, she's seen as like very much a character of a specific decade and like has dated Ilyana. When you look at her costume, you can't pinpoint it to a certain decade necessarily. Right. It, it looks like its own characterization kind of out of time. It has like a Final Fantasy quality, this very like almost retro 90s kind of aesthetic to it. But also like the headdress makes it look like a 60s Jack Kirby design. There's so many things going on in it. The straight bangs are iconic. Yeah. While I miss the I'm half silver kind of look that she used to have, 
I think that it was an iconic redesign that really hit with fans. And I think that was a big part of it. I think Bendis also pushed her as a lead in a way that had never really been done before since Claremont. He was like, this character is a character I love and she's going to be everywhere in this book. And she was. He reestablished her bond with Kitty, who is obviously a very popular character. It all kind of was just a perfect storm at that time. It was a time when a lot of people were coming back to the X-Men as readers because people were excited about Bendis taking over the book. And she got not just a great redesign that people liked, but also got to play a really significant role in the plot. Yeah. Pretty much all the time. And be the fun one. Like she was the character you enjoyed watching. She was mean. She was funny. Like that's, you know, that's a character that people are always going to, it's not unlike, I mean, the, the last character who I think had a rise this stratospheric so quickly was Emma Frost. In the I was Morrison just thinking the same thing. Yeah. And, and she's almost like the anti-Emma too, because where Emma is really composed mm -hmm. and tightly controlled in her demeanor. Ilyana's messy. Yes. And, and she like owns that. That's not the part that she's controlling. You know, she's worried about other things internally and she's not worried about being like unfeminine or brash or broy or whatever. Like that's not a concern to her. Yeah. She's performing also, but in a very different way. Like Emma right. is performing femininity in a way that Ilyana yes. isn't. But to go back, I think that what made Emma shoot into the stratosphere was very similarly. She got a killer redesign that people responded to and she got all the funniest lines in the book in New X-Men. Yeah, and that secondary mutation really... Yeah, the diamond yes. thing was critical. Yes. There's a reason she became so massive and I think that Ilyana similarly like came back, there was more focus on her than ever before, she has a new costume people like and again... Whether or not it's my aesthetic, the huge fucking sword, much like Emma's diamond form, was a new aspect of the character that visually redesigned her in a way that a lot of people thought was super fucking cool. And I don't think it's an accident that, you know, these two characters in particular had this just stratospheric rise. And also these two characters in particular are examples of sexy blondes who are taking their trauma and becoming stronger for it. Like, I, I I don't think that's an accident. I think that it's... I'm a very sexy character and here are the justifications for it and it's not <laughs> sexist to do it. Like, that also helps, right? Right. Yeah, it's like a zeitgeist thing, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Viet Dim writes, Dear Connor and the lovely Leah Williams, before we start, I just have to say to Leah that I absolutely adore your and David Baldion's work. The Krakoa era was the first time I got fully into comics and X-Factor was the first run I was fully invested in. From its announcement to its conclusion, picking up every single issue and eagerly awaiting the next. As a queer reader who also really loves murder mysteries, I was instantly attached to the X-Factor team and was so excited to see where it would go. I love those crazy kids so much and now that it's concluded, I can't wait to see where you and David Baldion go from here. I also have to say I loved What If Magic, specifically the moment where Liana manifested as the soul staff, proving to herself that a creature of ruin is capable of creating a thing of beauty. It brought a tear to my eye. Okay, enough gushing. On to the question. Thanks to this podcast, I had already known about Inferno while I was reading the classic X-Men and New Mutants run, and I just always kind of assumed that Belasco would be the big villain of the New Mutants part of the event, and that the Inferno itself would be triggered when Ilyana finished creating the five bloodstones for the medallion, since both Belasco and the bloodstones were such a core part of the original Magic miniseries. To my surprise, the bloodstones didn't play a part in Inferno at all, and Belasco was just gone, replaced instead by Nastir. 
Why do you think this was the case, and did the Bloodstones and or Belasco ever even show up again? Finally, if you two were to use your arcane magic to produce the purest tangible expression of your soul, what would it be? Love you both. Best, Vinny. I mean, I can't speak to... Um, the creative decisions back right, then. Right, because I, I wasn't a part of that, so I, I don't know, and I wouldn't want to like speculate, but I, I definitely think that it's at least safe for me to say you haven't seen the last of any of that like it's all still on the table the bloodstones factor enormously into her return in the 21st century because that's when pixie who we haven't mentioned yet somehow gets dragged somehow. into all of it i mean pixie is like sapna a character she sees her own trauma in and wants to prevent it but she causes it initially when she's soulless so that she becomes belasco in a very real way and then spends the rest of the utopia era is sort of trying to make it up to pixie atoning yeah without literally apologizing right to go back to the first question i think that belasco it's really charged it's like really really charged and i think there was already so much going on in that event that we didn't need to do that and nastir by virtue of being a new character was someone who Ilyana initially wasn't sure whether she should trust or not and that's why inferno happens Whereas if Belasco showed up and was like, come be my bride, like, we know that that's bad, right? Like, it's not as ambiguous for her. Yeah. But yeah, no, the Bloodstones are part of her whole plot with Pixie. And then the Zebwell's New Mutants is explicitly about Belasco's daughter, Ananim, trying to use the Bloodstones. And Ilyana also trying to use the Bloodstones in a way that's very sneaky. And you should read it if you haven't. It's fucking great. As for the purest tangible expression of my soul, if I were to create one, I don't know. That's really hard. Do you have a thought, Leah? Like, what would your soul object be? Um, I think it would probably be a fountain pen. And that seems like a really basic bitch answer for a professional writer to say. But <laughs> like in my defense, that is my writing implement of choice. She's holding up her physical notebooks yeah like this is a fountain pen I invested in a really nice one and it's you know one of the only this is the camera and it's one of the only I got him like a beauty youtuber a lot of my author clients are really one of them Alex White in particular is super into fountain pens and I get yeah that. well it's, it's like just a, like a different writing experience and mm -hmm. like I do everything analog so I she is flipping through a really I'm I'm like trying to lean in to read what this in the is a trial of magneto journal project journal and i i do everything handwritten first and then it gets typed out so i probably spend more time writing like physically writing than i do anything else and i i cannot imagine what other <laughs> object <laughs> i could manifest if not a pen if it's not a fountain pen it's a vape pen like do I love that for you? That's a great answer. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of what my answer would be. And I don't know that I have like a physical object that, I mean, it's funny, like, because you're so analog. I think mine might be like a computer because I I just, I spend all of my time, like, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm far too online, unfortunately. I'm trying to be less online because I'm in my 30s and online is a place that is not good to be anymore, I think. 
Well, it sucks your creativity. It's yeah, it's draining. It's draining. I I really appreciate the community that sprung up around this podcast and the moderators in the Discord server are really good at keeping the vibes good because I'm just like, you know, I can't have toxic energy in my space, particularly totally. when we're talking about this thing that I love and also like this thing that people I am friends with or work with work on. I'm like, we can't be like you need to Let's keep it cute. You can't Thank do you. that here. <laughs> like, yeah, like, you can't do that here. If you didn't like it, that's fine. Go somewhere else to talk about it. But yeah, I mean, I think that it would be something like, I, I don't know, like a tablet or something, which just feels like a weird answer. But something that gives me, I actually, you know what? I actually, I always responded to the scenes of Ilyana with a scrying pool, hmm. like the ability to see further. That was sort of her mystic power that I found most interesting. I've always been into like divination type stuff. Maybe it would be some kind of like a divination focus, like, like um, Sailor Neptune's mirror. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. My pinned tweet for years on Twitter was I aspire to be Sailor Neptune, but I know I'm Sailor Venus. That I think sums up a lot of my struggles. Sailor Venus is amazing though. She is, but she's also like a mess. My pin tweet for years was Bruce Wayne is a furry, and that's why I'm Usagi. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm very much a Monaco, and I'm always like, you know, I would love to be a serene seer violinist, but totally. I don't have the fine motor skills, and I <laughs> am a horny loudmouth. So it's just, you know, what are you gonna do? Michael Sheehan writes, greetings, Connor and Leah. I'm thrilled beyond words that Leah, my favorite comic book writer, is the guest on my favorite podcast discussing magic, my favorite character. <laughs> well, I'm thrilled for you to hear that. You've both brought a great deal of joy to my life through your respective contributions to the world of mutants. My question is a simple one that I've never seen addressed on the page, and that is, does Ilyana have a Russian accent? I feel strongly that she wouldn't have one since she left Russia at age six and learned English telepathically from Charles Xavier. Her time in limbo certainly could have influenced how she sounds, and while I don't know what a limbo American accent sounds like, I doubt it sounds Russian. What are your thoughts on the subject? Thank you both for your time. I look forward to your response. Love to you both. Michael, a.k.a. Stepping Discs on Twitter. My answer would have exactly resembled his that's i i totally agree she does not have a russian accent the way that her brother does yeah pyotr has one and mikhail definitely has one i think she might like put one on if she's like talking to them like as I, yeah like bit. i think there are contexts in which she would deliberately play up her russian identity i think it's something that she's proud of and and you know she does like to identify herself as it's a connection to her past she always calls him Pyotr Nikolaevich right exactly there was a question about Magneto's accent in the Magneto episode and I was like God only knows because he's been everywhere and done everything and it's so like that's a wild journey to have been on in terms of like linguistics I think that with her limbo American as I referred to her in an earlier episode and yeah I think if anything and this is probably something that she doesn't like about herself i think if anything she probably sounds like belasco yeah yeah i think so too so she sounds like belasco and she sounds like charles and she hates it and she hates both of those things so. yes <laughs> Cameron Huppertz writes, hi, Connor and Leah, longtime listener, first time question writer. First, I just want to say how much I enjoy the show. It's been a real comfort during the ups and downs of the pandemic because of these thoughtful, hilarious and very queer conversations about some of my all time favorite characters. Thank you, Connor. Now for my question, Marvel seems to want to position magic as having roles in both the X-Men corner of the universe and in the general magic shenanigans corner, inclusion, strange Academy and the upcoming Midnight Suns game. 
what do you think Ileana's future in these two spheres of Marvel will look like? Well, Leah can't tell you what the, she knows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could you see her anchoring a book like Sword that bridges the narratives between the new Marvel subarenas? Thanks again for all the great episodes, Cameron. Well, I think that she is a character who lends herself to forming bridges like that because she does have connections to Strange and other characters of that type. But I think she is a really centrally X character, so I wouldn't want her to get too far outside the realm of X. Yeah, and and think of it like Wolverine. Wolverine is popular enough that he shows up everywhere. And she's getting Wolverine publicity. She's getting there too. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing at all. But it doesn't mean that, you know, just because Wolverine shows up everywhere, co-stars in so many non-X books, it doesn't make him not an X-Men character. Right. It's still like intrinsic to his character. I think that there are better characters you could use to create a more elaborate bridge between X-Men continuity and Marvel magic. And I'm not going to tell you who they are because I would love to maybe talk to Marvel editorial about that someday. But thank <laughs> you for writing in. Some of them have been mentioned in this very episode, but they're not Ileana Rescutina. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that what you're seeing is the critical mass of support around a character becoming so big that she's become inescapable. And what's exciting about that in her case is that it's not because of movies or anything. It's because of fans. Comics fans. And yes. that's cool to see. Jason Woods, who emailed me months ago to ask me if I could have you on the show to talk about magic. And I replied, uh, well, uh, mm, sit tight. Because I, I had like emailed about it. I was like, don't, you know. And he was like, well, now you know like, it's because don't I do say everything anything. analog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like. <laughs> Sorry for the delay, Jason. No, it's okay. I was just like, the idea, Jason, has occurred to me. Yes, that's why <laughs> there hasn't been an episode yet. So anyway, Jason writes, I started my ex-fandom in the 90s, then was out of the game from about 2004 until 2014 or so. I didn't truly get back in until the Krakoa era. That meant until recently, the only experience I had with Ileana's character was her death in Uncanny X-Men 303. When the pandemic started, I decided to keep myself busy by reading every issue of The New Mutants ever published. And I loved Ileana so much, it also turned into a hunt for every appearance of hers I could get my hands on. She's now one of my favorite characters in no small part due to a couple of wonderful issues written by Leah Williams. Early childhood trauma is such an important part of Ileana's origin story and part of the reason the character resonates so strongly with me. Although my story is much different than hers, I also experienced serious trauma at a very young age. I love that Ileana wrestles with the dark child side of herself, which is both powerful and also a part of her that scares and disgusts her. But since the quest for magic, and certainly in the last several years, it seems like writers aren't writing Ileana as someone wrestling or coming to terms with her traumatic experiences, and that bothers me to an extent. I appreciate that she can be such a solid example of a confident, capable, badass human being, despite and or because of her original limbo experience and the scars she carries with her. But I also think it's important to realize that although you can absolutely live a healthy, fulfilling life, dealing with the repercussions of a traumatic experience doesn't just disappear, and it takes a lot of hard work to manage. So my question is, since Ileana's resurrection in the quest for magic, do you think most writers have more or less decided her character isn't dealing or is done dealing with the repercussions of her early childhood trauma? Or do you think this is more a result of Ileana only showing up in team books and never as the main character of a solo book? Thank you so much for all the wonderful things you're putting out into the world, Jason. It's definitely still a part of her character. I don't think that um, it has intentionally been erased or overlooked. Yeah, I do think that part of it is in a team book, there's only so much time. What I love about Vita's New Mutants, actually, and one of the things that I think is most brilliant about it as a book is the way that it's cycling through these characters and digging into them like it was more introspection mm -hmm. about karma than anyone has ever written ever except maybe yes. for Marjorie Lou. even then Marjorie Lou's arc was about sort of a new thing going on this really dug into 
karma's earliest appearances, karma's earliest traumas and tried to deal with them. And I think did a really incredible job. I'm excited to see where it goes as she faces off with the Shadow King, who obviously is her great abuser. It's clear that the next arc is about Ilyana. So Mm -hmm. I am really excited to see where that goes. And Vidaya is a writer I trust to bring that stuff to the fore. It doesn't, even if the story is not about that, it'll be about that. Like, look at how, I mean, for God's sake, they're writing Rain Sinclair in a three-dimensional way, which I'm not sure anyone's done since 1988, you know? <laughs> and, and also Warpath. Like, look at yeah. the characters that Vita is writing and how they are grappling with their trauma at every single turn and every single arc. Like, Warpath is dealing with the loss of Thunderbird and Karma is dealing with the loss of her brother. Rain is dealing with the loss of her son. Like, these are this is new mutants. This is Vita's new mutants. This is what they do. And, and, you know, magic is no exception. Ayala and Rice are nailing that Claremont Sienkiewicz energy. They're so in sync and on the same page with each other. They collaborate really closely. It has that heady quality to it where you feel like you're reading something important. Yes. I feel that way every month. So I would say sit tight because I don't think that's been forgotten. I think that there has in the last 10 years or so, or at least since since Bendis wrote her, I think that her cool factor has been emphasized a lot. But I think that it's because we haven't had a ton of time to sit with her as a character and her thoughts. And I think that's what we're going to get now. Yeah. Robert Secundus writes, hello, Connor and Leah. The way X-Men intersects with other sci-fi genres like space opera or time travel is always interesting to me because those intersections can just as easily underscore the mutant metaphor, like in Days of Future Past, as they can whisk the X-Men to a story that seems distant from the mutant metaphor, like the Brood Saga. I wonder what you both think about intersections on the other end of the genre spectrum, stories about magic, demons, and hell dimensions, etc. Do they tend to underscore the mutant metaphor or put it at a distance? If the former, how does magic help tell stories about marginalization or the marginalized? Oh, there's an alternate question also. Wait, let me Yeah, but answer. let's handle that. Let's tackle that first. Robert, you're sending me all kinds of Yeah, before I They're always good. So let's do questions. that one now. Yeah. Hi Robert. I I love Robert. He's great. He's great. I I think that there is a way that, you know, let's let's call it high fantasy, that um high fantasy can interact with the mutant metaphor in a way that is very harmful. And the example I'm going to use is Harry Potter because JK Rowling's thoughts on like, would there be autistic wizards is no, because they get cured. And so this is where I think that it's incredibly detrimental to what the message is supposed to be. The fact that like, what makes you different, it can be cured. Like that's- Fucked up. That's fucked up. The way that we've dealt with that in the Krakoan era is the fact that mutants have their own magic. You know, this is Excalibur. This is what Teeny Howard has been writing. Yep. That mutants have invented their, or, or not really invented, they've finally been able to access their own form of like magic and divination and sorcery that is unique to mutants. Because before this point, they've never had the like agency and autonomy to explore these things when they're so worried about survival. And, and now it's, it's finally, you know, they're safe enough that they can start exploring these additive things. I, I think that magic and hell and and demons in particular also as it relates to more specifically to x-men storytelling in the past is it's kind of almost intrinsic it it is something Mm -hmm. that is part and parcel with our storytelling if you look at like the big events and the popular characters and 
the fact that we revisit these concepts in, and I mean like the royal we, like <laughs> yeah, past writers have revisited these concepts time and time again because it it so much is connected to the idea of when you are othered, when you are alienated because of your identity, because of how the world sees you, you are automatically sorted into a category designated wrong. And, and where do the wrong ones go in accordance to some of the population who would put you there? You go to hell. Like I, I'm thinking specifically in terms of like a queer lens um, mm-hmm. and, and like looking at Ileana, that entire story when you look at it through like critical queer theory and and that kind of thing. If you read Ileana as a lesbian, which I do, I happen to read her that way. I'm not saying that everybody has to, but I do. I read her as an ace lesbian. Also valid. To me, whatever it is, it's something very queer going on, right? Yes. And that is part of this. Here's what I'll say. I don't like when the story gets too Abrahamic in its hell stuff. Like, I don't love when it's like Satan or heaven. I think that's a little on the nose. I like Limbo because Limbo is just a place like any other dimension in the Marvel Universe that happens to have demons in it. I think that like Mojo World, it's more useful in that it's less specific. Yeah. It's also not hindered by the constraints of religion. Yes. And I think that where it becomes a problem for the mutant metaphor is when it's explicitly like, let's fight Christian religion or but like, I think it just becomes too, it's too narrow. And I think that it's more interesting when it's like, what is the nature of evil? Am I a bad thing? Like, does God in a general sense reject me? Like that, I think, is more where it lives, like as opposed to like the hell lords or like, you know, let's get Nightcrawler in heaven. Like that stuff works for me less than having it be sort of a more D&D hell dimension kind of thing, which is, I think, what Limbo is. Like Limbo is like Bator or the Abyss or whatever. The nine hells. It's not hell from Dante's Inferno. Hell trademark symbol. Yeah. When Claremont one time takes them to Dante's Inferno Hell, it's Margali Sardish doing a prank, you know, in that annual. It's not real. And I think that that's essential. And I think that's also something that's very Jewish about the X-Men, but I won't get into all of that too, (laughs) because that's just, but like the idea that like hell is a subjective thing rather than like hell is a thing that exists is I think really important. But I think that magic in general can be a really useful tool. I mean, the character that I think exemplifies the way that fantasy stories can really be fruitful with the mutant metaphor is Megan from Excalibur. I, yeah, I was thinking the the same thing. Or I was thinking about Excalibur in general and the way that, you know, high fantasy became such a part of... Um, like mutant storytelling. Yeah, I mean, I think Teeny has revolutionized that in this space. Oh, completely, yeah. I'm really thrilled that Megan as a character is someone who is becoming more prominent in that book. I was delighted that it was Megan who figured out Mordred's deal because it's also Megan's deal. And if you go back to Megan's origin story, it's I was a mutant and my parents rejected me because they thought I was a fairy child a changeling. My mutant power made them believe that. The thing, though, that's empowering about Megan that I think is also empowering about Ilyana 
is that Megan, as it turns out, is in part a fairy child also, in the same way that Ilyana is in part a demon. And so I am a mutant. I am this thing that reflects a minority experience. But also this negative thing that you've put on me, calling me a demon or a fairy or what have you, I'm that too. And actually there's nothing wrong with that per se. I think that is useful because I think if we say, like to look at the queer angle, if it's like, no, I'm not a demon, I'm queer. I think it's also important for characters like Megan and Ilyana to say, I'm a demon and queer. You know? Right, right. <laughs> that, I'm both and that's right. okay. <laughs> and that's fine. Even if I feel conflicted about it sometimes. So I think that that's an example of the way it can be really fruitful. And I actually would love to see those two characters interact at some point. I don't believe they ever have. Mm-mm. It feels to me like we're gearing up for a, a Meganessance on some level. Yes. In other yeah. words. And I'm, I'm very excited because I've loved that character since I was a child. Yeah, she's amazing. She's the best. Robert also asks, one of my favorite things about Leah's X-Men series so far is how the concept of magic with a C has been applied to Ilyana, the Morrigan, and now the Scarlet Witch in distinct ways. My question for Leah is, how do you hone the magic system's representation of magic for a particular story or character? What's your process like for deciding how magic is going to function in a particular story? Thank you, Connor, as always, for the work you do on this wonderful podcast. And Leah, thank you for all your incredible comics. But at the moment, thank you especially for the trial of Magneto, which features a treatment of mysticism and magic, especially in the wild data pages that I haven't been able to stop thinking about ever since I read the first issue. Can't wait to see what's next. Best, Robert Spindus. A shit ton of research. That's <laughs> that's what I do. And I like not even exaggerating. It is so important to research not only the characters, but how you're going to be informing their different usage of magic. Because my approach to it is like my same thinking about characters that have the same power. Like I'm, I'm steadfast on this. I think every single telepath has a different like style and flavor of mm-hmm. telepathy because they are different people and, and it, it comes out it's of a mental power and their minds right. are different. And it is just as much informed by their personality and their experiences and their identity as anything that they say and, and how they live. It's completely, it, they, these powers should be distinct from one another. And so I feel that way about magic as well and the usage of it. I think that it is informed by a character's history, a character's experiences and you know where they're at in life. So using the Scarlet Witch as an example, and Robert brought this up because he knows, like we've talked about this, <laughs> that her Jewish and Romani ancestry is a big part of like those data pages and what I'm looking at for how her magic comes out of her. Like Jewish mysticism is really important to what's going on with her in Trial of Magneto. I have noticed that and I have really appreciated it because <laughs> the erasure of Wanda's Jewishness has been very upsetting to me as like a Jewish reader. Particularly, and I know that we can't get into this, obviously, but like the the idea that Wanda and Pietro were the children of the Holocaust, that they were Jewish and Romani, that was important to me. And, you know, whether or not I know we we can't talk about however this story is going to resolve, but I have really appreciated both in Al Ewing's sword issue at the gala and in Trial of Magneto, the emphasis on they are Magneto's children, regardless of any other considerations like they are his. They are a family. Completely. I think that that is important. And so I have noticed the Kabbalah stuff and I have been digging it. Oh, good. I'm I'm (laughs) glad to hear it. To me, something that comes naturally to 
these characters is, you know, the output of their magic is going to resemble their identity, their culture, and their like training and experiences mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So with Wanda, she's got her heritage and she's got her history and she's also got a lot of magical training at this point. So that's why she's able to hone it more, her her chaos magic in particular. And we're going to be pushing that to its kind of furthest, most additive conclusion by the end of Trial of Magneto. It's not destructive like we've seen in the past. It's additive. She's in control. I have a theory about where it's all going that I won't share because I would feel I'm like, yeah, you know, I can't do that. But I have an idea of where I think the story is going to go. And if it goes where I think it's going to go, I'm going to be really thrilled as someone who has notably been very, very harsh to Wanda Maximoff in the past. <laughs> but I appreciate how you've been writing her. The Uncanny Avengers Wanda is just never far from my mind is all. But I think that this I like this Wanda. I think that the sequences of her in the orchard have been really lovely and have been a nice reframing of the character, which is the important thing to do, I think, with especially these female characters who have been used as plot devices so many times. Like, what am I thinking? Another line from the Excalibur 20 or 19 rather that I really loved was when Conan wants to go find Betsy in Otherworld and Rogue is like, oh, I don't know if that's a good idea. And Khan's like, did you ask what I think? Because no one has asked what I think, actually, like ever in 30 years of publication, which is not said, but like, that's, you know. What actually, this is now me asking a question. What made you want to dig into the Morrigan stuff? Because I, I'm also Irish, Connor Goldsmith. There isn't a lot of Celtic myth stuff in the Marvel Universe. You see much more like Greek, Norse, kind of stuff or like sort of a pan-Asian thing. I was intrigued by the use of it because House of X just like sort of showed us Siren and she was back to normal. And then there was sort of a deliberate choice, like, no, we're going to deal with the Morrigan stuff. What was the uh, the impetus there? Um, well, it was fixing Jonathan's mistake. first. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh man, someone's got to clean that up. And, um, but I also like love Siren and she's important to the legacy of X Factor, obviously. So Mm -hmm. it it wasn't a hardship to, to tackle that and, and take that on. And the story became, because the Morgan had like in the past taken different avatars as, um, you know, her, the people that she was inhabiting Mm -hmm. tired of that life and, and wanted to die. Finally, my thinking going into it was how would a deathless culture affect a death goddess? A god of death. Yeah. Right. And how is this going to disrupt her source of power? What are the effects going to look like? How is this going to, you know, manifest differently? And the conclusion that I came to is you can't kill God. You cannot get rid of this presence no matter what, but you can allocate the power more safely and productively uh, in a way that benefits characters. So we ended up not being able to do this because it was truncated, obviously. Yeah. Right. X Factor was canceled for Trial of Magneto. But before that point, the gets like what this was going to become 
is instead of there being like a singular Morrigan entity, the power was diverted three ways into what would become eventually three Krakoan gods, members of the Krakoan pantheon. So Shatterstar, god of battle, Siren, god of the dead, because even if mutants are resurrected, they still die. Mm -hmm. So she was going to be able to communicate with dead people. It was going to be this whole thing for X-Factor investigations and Elixir, god of healing. Do you think those ideas will find their way into a story elsewhere? Um. Probably not. <laughs> I don't know when it, when anyone else would ever have an opportunity to right. set that up, you know, with the pieces of the board. I like the idea that you have shared of like Siren getting sort of a connection to the dead and to ghosts and stuff. I think that would be a cool, like emphasizing the Banshee thing. I think that would be a exactly. cool place to take and it Wherever still... she turns up next, you could do that without the pantheonic idea. Right, 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 right. And it still connects her to her heritage and in a way that is not destructive to her. Right. And having just like really revisited her because we just did the Siren episode, I I would just like to see that girl have a good day at some point <laughs> in her <Yeah>. life. <laughs> so that would be, yeah. that would be a, nice. It's been a rough ride. <laughs> it's been a, it's been a, from start to finish, just a real, like from infancy, really, really rough ride for that one. <laughs> Vinicius de Moraes writes, is magic sapphic with a K? I regret nothing, Vinny. That's a really funny question. Uh, yes, is the answer. But whether that ever gets to be explicit is up to a lot of people who are not on this podcast is my right. sense. So, and like, as you, know. you and I have already said earlier, I, I see her as an ace lesbian. But also I'm biased because I ship Kate with Rachel. So like, oh, see, so cards on the table. <laughs> so I don't. I ship Kate with Ilyana. And that's part of why I'm really, I hadn't thought that much about Betsy and Rachel in a long time because they haven't been on the page together in a long time. But I had really liked them in the Claremont reload period when I wasn't crazy about Rachel's stories generally, but I liked their sort of like House of M adventure together in the White Hot Room and all that stuff. And now I have been like fully retzy pilled like over the course of Excalibur and I'm obsessed with it. Oh, I have too. It's fine. Here's my thing. I think Kate and Rachel did date Circa Extreme X-Men and Mechanics and that it ended weird because Piotr came back from the dead and Kitty got back with Piotr. I just think she hasn't treated Rachel well, much like she didn't treat Sean well in Mechanics. And I feel like all of these girls that Kitty did date on the DL should date other people. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Like, I think Rachel and Betsy could be endgame. Chris Claremont clearly is also on the the Kate and Rachel train. Did you read the Paragon Collection stories? Mm -hmm. They're hard to get a hold of, but I have them because I bought it because I'm a mark. But uh, I was talking to Annalise about them because she edited them. And there's a very, I mean, Kate calls Rachel my love in that. I mean, it's very overt. It's very queer coded. Yeah. Yeah. But I also think that like Rachel and Betsy could be endgame. Like they're so good together I think and they're, they're so really on the good same together. page. Yeah. I like, I get that too. Talk about Haruka Machiru, actually. It's like a very, it has a vibe. I really like them together. I think that, I don't know. I'm really enjoying what I see as like the love triangle developing between Betsy, Rachel, and Saturnine. That's my, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm very invested. In Completely. <laughs> Tree writes, hey, Cerebro, I have a magic question. What the fuck is a soul? <laughs> like, I, I, <laughs> like, 
I kind of understand what a soul is in a biblical sense, but what does it mean in Marvel? What does it mean to not have one? Does not having a soul mean you're a sociopath or a bitch or something? Is the soul that keeps you from having demon horns and vague magical powers? I recognize this is largely inconsistent writing over the years, but why didn't Nightcrawler's personality change when he lost his soul? Does having your soul in the form of a sword or dagger count as having it? Does Pixie have a full soul since she has the stones? Does magic? Several question marks. Sorry for the rant. I meant to send parts of that for the Pixie episode. LMAO. I'm very excited for this episode. I nearly fainted when I heard Leah would be on two of my favorite people in comics, best metaphysically confused tree. So the answer is, what do you want it to be, right? Because it's a metaphor. Like, the soul's not a literal thing. But in this superhero comic, sometimes it is. And that is tricky, which is what you're identifying. I think in the age of Krakoa, it's particularly fraught to ask, like, what is the soul? Right. And it's something that even as writers, we try not to pin down because the moment we do that closes the door on the story. So we, we are trying to leave it more kind of open and ambiguous for as long as we need it to be, because there's more storytelling possibilities that way. I think in the most basic sense for me as a writer, I think of it in the Marvel universe as being the essential essence of your being the essence of the person yeah and it's intangible but it's something completely unique to you every clone has their own yes and it's new and it's unique madeline Pryor and jean this is what i argued with jordan about oh i've argued this with jordan too i told jordan literally if madeline accidentally sold her soul to sim that means she had one to sell and it wasn't jeans because jean isn't bound to limbo right So, yeah, here's what I'll say when it comes to Ilyana and when it comes to Madeline, actually. And I'm not going to get too deep into that because, as you all know, all I want to do in my life is write about Madeline Pryor. But I think that the important thing with these characters is that when you sell your soul to the devil or a devil, let's say, because, again, I don't like when it's the devil, but to a demon, the pact that you have made is something that fundamentally alters the essence of yourself and that is the conflict for these characters we've seen in ten of swords actually my thought process is that the reason that the death in other worlds complicates resurrection is to prove that whatever the soul is whatever the essence of a person is it is involved in this krakoan resurrection process but what that means in a biblical sense, I think is not necessarily useful to the story and therefore best ignore. I mean, this is a problem I have with the Layla Miller character again and all of that hell stuff in Extractor Investigations because I think once you codify like losing your soul makes you a sociopath, A, that's limiting, B, it feels like a very religious idea that's not necessarily in keeping with and it's also not necessarily true. There are plenty of sociopaths. There are plenty of sociopaths with souls, right? out there if the soul exists at all right yeah no i mean i i read mystique as a sociopath that's my reading of that character and she has a soul she got it nobody's ever touched it so you know that's just she's got a personality disorder that's not that's not (laughs) that has nothing to do with your soul i think that it is a currency that can be used as part of magic and that that is what's important to these characters is that you can give something of yourself to the darkness and you can't get it back and it's something that is fundamental to you yes It's specific to you and it's only you. You cannot give it up without altering yourself permanently. Right. As for the question of like, do you have it if you have the gems? It is implied at the end of Zeb Wells' New Mutants that because 
Pixie and Ilyana are in possession of the Bloodstones. They have their soul in whatever sense. But it's also very significant that they cannot turn the Bloodstones back into essence. Yeah, it's it's just like a physical extension of their soul. It's like Koshe's death, like Koshe the Deathless, the fairy tale. He can't put that back in himself, and it makes him vulnerable. It's his one weak point. So if you stole the Bloodstones from them, you might be able to do things. Like, that would be bad for them, probably. It's a weakness to the characters, but I do think that in terms of their morality and how the soul's been written that way, like the dark child emerges from the dark part of your soul or whatever, Ilyana has all the pieces of her soul now. It's about how she chooses to use them, whether or not they've been externalized. Right, exactly. Turtle Power writes, <laughs> Hello, Connor and Leah. I know there are a ton of people who wrote in about magic, so I'll ask my question first and save the praise for Leah until afterwards. What happened with the Bloodstone amulet that was given to her by Belasco? Her being slowly corrupted and filling in the Bloodstone seemed like a big overarching plot established in the Magic Mini, but come Inferno, she fully transformed into the Dark Child with nary a mention of the amulet. Some cursory googling didn't turn up anything, so I assumed it was a plot through that got dropped. Did it ever get mentioned again? Okay, read Zebwell's New Mutants. It's big, and it's all over that, and it's one of the best excellent books ever i think praise for leah i just wanted to chime in alongside dozens of listeners i'm sure to say how much i enjoyed x factor when i was doing my first read through of the krakoa era those issues were the ones i looked forward to the most i fully lost my shit when Dakin and prodigy had the disaster by versus distinguished by conversation as it was the first time i had ever seen two canonically bisexual male characters have a conversation in media i learned about speed and prodigy later I also thought the scene where Dokken gets kicked off the Mojo World streaming service because he was about to show off his whole tattoo, a.k.a. whip out his dick, was absolutely hysterical and also hot. Anyway, just wanted to let Leah know how much I enjoyed that book and her writing in general, and that I'm eagerly looking forward to reading more of her work going forward. Love for everything you both do. Turtle power. Well, because I just validated your question because Zeb Wells answered it, here's <laughs> what I will ask. Can you give us a hint at all about what you might be working on next? The tiniest little itsy-bitsy. Nope. No. Okay. Had to ask. <laughs> now we're moving on. There, there's no way to to without suggesting too much. Yeah. No, I get it. It's it's impossible. I, I am gonna have the the most hilarious fucking screenshots between myself and Hickman once it does get announced because this book, what I'm working on post trial of Magneto, it's my like blue sky thinking, kind of pie in the sky wish list that I have always wanted to do. Well, that's amazing. And I'm glad to hear it. Thank you. And I, yeah, I can't say anything else. That's fine. Than that. <laughs> You'll like it. You guys will like it. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. There is a book after trial of Magneto. There we go. That's nice. That's something that people will like to oh, hear. Knock on wood. I, I always think it doesn't count until, <laughs> until it it's the on the shelves. shelves. Right. right. No, I got you completely. And this hasn't even been announced yet. So. But you know that there are always people. I mean, I, I was like, she's at the summit, guys. Like, relax. You know, there's always people who are nervous about these things. I know. And I, I appreciate it. Definitely. Yeah. Well, it just shows that you have really struck a chord with people, that there are so many people who are invested in your career and want you to stay in the office and want to make sure that there's more coming. And that's always heartening, right? Especially when the internet is so full of assholes. Right. Right. Patrick Talbot writes, Dear Connor and Leah, as always, love the pod. Leah's also been one of my favorite writers in the X-Line ever. X-Factor was an absolute sensation. Thank you for your work. Magic has always been something of a self-insert character for me in terms of my own mental illness and self-perception. What if magic made me cry multiple times? It's definitely a comfort read for me. Do you have any plans to explore that universe and version of Mizra's Rutina anytime soon? Thanks, Patrick Talbot. Are there any other stories in that world that you might want to tell? Well, Doctor Strange, the end is literally like a story a sequel, set yeah. in the same world. Yeah, it's 
not not like a true sequel because it's focused on doc strange obviously it's the death of mm-hmm. dr strange i shouldn't say that because now there's an event called death of dr strange this is right yeah it's not the same death of dr strange different death of dr strange this is like the quintessential trademark symbol death of dr strange the way that every book in the end line is about you know the one true death of this character and what that would look like so because of the popularity of what if magic the creative team, we were asked to reunite and tell another story in this same world. We were given that opportunity with Doc Strange, the end. So I was able to, you know, feature that same world. The ending of it, you know, for him at least. Right, right. And <laughs> and kind of like provide more context for what happens after What If Magic. And, and there's a huge gap of time in between something like 13 years have passed maybe more than that but uh i i could write a whole series set in that world i think that iliana's trajectory from you know teenage runaway and abuse victim into actually becoming the sorcerer supreme is Mm -hmm. a really interesting story to tell yeah i mean i think it would be a killer ogn oh totally that's literally what I said to Annalise in my first email reply to her. Like, this should be a graphic novel. We need like know. 70 pages at least. Yeah, like, like, I, yeah, like... <laughs> But that's why What If Magic ends where it does, you know, yeah. not with that actually happening, but, you know, that path is presented. Cassidy Knight writes, Dear esteemed Connor and esteemed Leah, What, I don't get to use that adjective in front of both of you? Of course I do. Leah, I've loved your ex-related character work. And Connor, I'm a big fan of the pod, as you'll recall by me accosting you on the street in West Hollywood. (laughs) I do recall that. (laughs) So I just wanted to say thank you to both of you for what you've reignited in me, my ex-passion and obsession. First, I'd love to say, Leah, that I loved your depiction of Lorna in X Factor. I recently had a discussion with some other fans about her demons. A lot of people have read her as bipolar. I and some others were reading her with a personality disorder. I have borderline personality disorder myself and have been really responding to her shaky sense of identity. How much of that psychology goes into your work? I saw something special with Betsy and extremists, and I can't help but see it here in Polaris. Do you think it's important to define in real world terms what might be wrong with characters? Or do you think it's better to leave things ambiguous and let the audience try to determine what it means to them? Best, Cassidy. Um, I definitely do see her as somebody who is neurodivergent. And um, I, I haven't thought of her in terms of borderline personality disorder. I think of her in terms of being bipolar. Same, yeah. You know, like that's that's what I I can recognize in in her character. But that said, I don't think that me thinking that should dissuade anybody else's interpretation of her as you know having BPD or or some other form of mental illness. I think that it's important not to close those doors in order to make sure that she continues to resonate with people for important reasons and make them feel seen and heard and important and capable of heroism. In doing my my research about bipolar disorder and the way that it affects people's day to day, that was what I wanted my focus to be. Mm-hmm. You know, because the way that we've seen it portrayed with her in the past um, is unhinged, crazy lady, uh, throws a wrench in the works. Oh, it's a plot device. You know, like I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do... Um, the normal side of it, uh, right. the, the insomnia. <laughs> I talked to Jerry about that recently because he wants to carry that through in his X-Men run. I, I think that it's, I also read her as bipolar, but I think that it's like, 
how many characters in Marvel comics explicitly have a mental illness? Not that many. There's like Moon Knight, you know, Wanda takes antidepressants. Like we've seen some stuff, but I think it's really cool. Well, Nadia, as... um, Nadia Van Dyne, textually, canonically bipolar. There you go. See, I don't, I'm, I'm so bad at the Avengers stuff. So I did not know that, <laughs> but good for her. Well, or, you know, a struggle for her, but I'm sure that, but good for the world is what I'm saying. Like, I think it's really important to see characters who have struggles like that that are not metaphorical that are real like in the same way that i've said like the mutant metaphor doesn't scan onto race so it's important to have a character like storm who can talk about both of those things i think that while the disability metaphor scans much better onto mutation it's also important to have a mutant who has a disability who can talk about that Oh, sure. Completely. But I think that with, you know, like, let's use um, Lorna and Wanda as examples here. These are not the perfect avatars for um, representation on these fronts because of their history, because of the way it has been misused in mm -hmm. their past as a capacity for incredible destruction. On the show, I say they went crazy when a woman right. goes crazy like, because it's very specific in these comics. I don't think that, you know, necessarily demonizing mental illness by putting a cap on it that way and, you know, labeling it like, yes, this is what bipolar disorder looks like. I, I don't think that that is necessarily um, the way forward. I think the way forward is to make it authentic, make it real, mm -hmm. make sure that these characters continue to resonate in the important ways that they have been resonating with fans for years. Just make it better. Not like cured better, but better representation. Yeah, absolutely. A writes and not a apocalypse, but someone who asked to be identified by the initial A. I mean, maybe it's apocalypse. I don't know. I didn't ask. Hi, Connor and Leah. This, uh, so this is more of a comment than a question, but I wanted to read it because it felt important. Hi, Connor and Leah. Connor, I love you so much for putting so much love and care into this project. I'm so grateful to have you in my feed on a weekly basis and truly wish we were friends in real life. Well, that's very sweet. Thank you. Your work has ignited my desire to read all of the X-Men franchise again. It's got me through a lot of grad school tasks. Data analysis can be so soul-draining. So thank you. Leah, I drunkenly messaged you on Instagram once to thank you for What If Magic because I'd never resonated more with a story starring my favorite character. I love and I'm so grateful for your work. I always viewed Magic's story as being that of chronic childhood sexual abuse, partly because I wanted an outlet that let me see myself and what I could become. The dark child persona to me wasn't this evil, malicious entity. It was a hurt child who was forced to adapt to an evil environment. I view the dark child as a method through which magic reclaims agency by having to adapt to the stress and learn to live within her environment. And, you know, there wasn't a question there, but when someone writes in with something really personal like that, that shows how important these comics can be and why it is really important to be thoughtful with these characters. Yeah, and I hope that if they're listening to this podcast, then they will have heard us like in no Go uncertain into that. terms, yeah. completely agree with our interpretations of magic on that front. Like absolutely. I absolutely agree with it. And I think that it's one of the things that makes her such an important character. Connor Mulvaney writes, Hey, Connor and Leah. First off, let me say how absolutely stoked I am that my favorite podcaster and favorite modern writer are now talking about my all-time favorite character. I love how many people have said that. That's really, it's a fun theme. 
Months ago, I had, perhaps a bit presumptuously, messaged Connor asking to come on to talk about Ileana, but he told me he had someone planned, and I've had my fingers crossed it would be Leah, so you can guess the noises I made when it was announced <laughs> on the podcast. But on to the questions, which have to do with your thoughts on Ileana's current role in Krakoa. A few times on the pod, Connor, you've brought up that her role as war captain and a mentor in New Mutants doesn't exactly click for you, but would make more sense to you as a role for Danny Moonstar. To an extent, I have to say I disagree. Danny is certainly a leader, the synthesis of the best of Scott and Aurora that Claremont tried to capture in her introduction. But for me, that makes it make more sense that she'd belong somewhere on the council. As a mentor, I've always believed in Ilyana as a protector of children, working so desperately to save others from what was done to her. Over her last several years of publication, she's developed a relationship with Scott that I absolutely adore. My headcanon is that she was specifically requested by him to function as his lieutenant and a soldier he can trust. Christ, okay, on to the question now. Actually, if she wasn't a war captain or a teacher, what role or archetype do you think Ilyana would function best in? And what do you think it is about Scott that makes Ilyana feel safe in their relationship? He obviously sees potential in her, but what do you both think Ilyana sees in him? Okay, that was a lot. Sorry. Thank you so much for an incredible pod. Your commitment to loving these characters. Can't think of a better other Connor to share ex-Twitter with. A whole lot of love. Connor reads Claremont. I think that she would be in Excalibur. I think she would be, her focus would be on the like mysticism and magic side of things, especially since she is a mutant with magic and what they're dealing with is the advent of mutant magic for the first time. And as far as uh, Scott and their relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first let me disagree with you about, you know, her role in new mutants because both Danny and magic are like protectors and mentors of, of younger kids. I mean, all the new mutants cast are, but they do it in different ways. They serve the younger, you know, Krakoans in very different ways with magic. It's like, if they find out about a situation where a kid is being abused in a home, they send magic in. Yeah, She's the enforcer. She's going to fuck somebody up. Like that's what she does. And she's happy to do it. If they need someone to talk to the kid, Sean will do that. Right. You know, you go talk to her. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And when you need like a himbo in gym shorts, you, you go talk to Warpath. I think what Vita has illustrated really well with that specific cast is how all of them together are an effective teacher in the way that Charles, for example, never was to them. Yes, yes. Not that he taught Jimmy, but you get what I'm saying, which is like, it takes a village to raise a child is the expression, right? Exactly, exactly. It's about community. It's about community building. Yeah. And these characters all do that in different ways that complement one another. Yeah. Even rain. Even rain. Even rain. (laughs) Completely agree. And as far as Ileana and Scott, I think that Scott presents this potential for like an older brother figure who this is his only incarnation of her. He has Mm -hmm. no past to be like disappointed by the differences between she she was was never his snowflake. Exactly. She was always this and he always accepted her and she loves that. She fucking loves it. Like Scott's an easy person to be around. He's he's. Scott and and He's look at his reliable. history with the telepaths. Yeah. Unless you're married to him, but otherwise. Unless you're married to him, but just like, don't marry him and you'll <laughs> Don't be marry him. No one told you to do that. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh I I think that it's it's you know, like catnip for Ileana. He he's calm, he's reliable, he accepts her exactly as she is, and also thinks she's capable of great things and and thinks the world of her. And they bro out together. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. 
I also think that it was just sort of a trial by fire. Like, I think they really bonded in that Bendis era as radicals together. And I think that she was the one who really got what he was trying to do and became sort of the arm of it. She was sort of the fist to his... Like, he had an open hand and she was the closed fist, you know, in a lot of ways in that run. And I think they just vibe in that way. Yeah. I think they understand each other. And for a character like Ileana, who rarely feels understood, I think it's very important to have someone in her life who she feels understands her. Completely. And and conversely, like on, on the other side of it, the symmetry in that relationship is the fact that Scott was embarking on, you know, like this new radical line of thinking for him. He rejected everything he'd ever been taught and she followed him. And she accepted him. And she was like, yeah, let's roll. You know, of, yeah. of course he loved that. About you having her. a dark child moment? Let's do it. Let's go. I've been there, <laughs> you know. Space astronaut writes, love that. Thank you for writing in from the depths of space. Hello, Connor, an honored guest. Mikhail Rasputin has had a lot of on-panel interactions with Pyotr, but aside from New Mutants, Truth, or Death, I don't think Ilyana's ever interacted with her eldest brother. Why do you think that is? Is Mikhail just not as good a foil to her as he is to Pyotr? Should they ever meet? What do you think their dynamics should be like? Are there any stories you'd be interested in seeing starring the two of them? Well, we can't get into that because, again, Leah writes these books. But we'll get into the general question. Given their shared moral grayness, proficiency in magic, and died-but-not-really experiences, I hope we'll see them interacting and on panel. Absolutely love the podcast. Super excited for the magic episode. As a magic fan, What If Magic is one of my favorite Ileana stories ever. So here's the bottom line. When Claremont was writing Ileana, which is the majority, well, and when Simonson, like the whole classic run there, Mikhail didn't exist because Mikhail was a backstory character who had died before Ileana was born. It's not until the 90s that Mikhail is retconned into the character we know now who didn't actually die and is a supervillain, etc. And by that point, Ileana was dead of the legacy virus. So they've just never existed in the same space at the same time, except for that Truth or Death miniseries where there was time travel involved and he accidentally infected her with the legacy virus. Well, not so accidentally. It's complicated. I got into it in the character file. But here's what I'll say. Mikhail's making major moves right now in the present and I would love to see a giant size X-Men Rasputins where they all hash that out, the three of them. I think they're all in an interesting place as characters right now. And it would be a great time for Ileana to meet Mikhail. But whether or not that's going to happen is not something Leah can tell you. So we can't get too into the weeds. The family dynamics of the X-Men comics are some of the most interesting stuff in the X-Men comics. And I think that it would be cool to see that. The thing for Ilyana is that because she never knew Mikhail, there isn't the same resonance as there is with her relationship with Pyotr, where it's like, you knew me when I was innocent and now I am not, which is the core tension of their relationship. Mikhail never knew her at all. So it's different. But I'd love to see what it is whenever it does come to pass. Pedro Nandes writes, Hi, Connor. You probably already received a million emails about this stunt already. I actually haven't, so I'm glad you asked about it. But I needed to ask you and Lee an important question about this iconically messy period in Ileana's history. If Ileana tricked you into becoming the juggernaut during a life-or-death situation for mutant kind, turning into a monster driven by destruction, I'll teach you a lesson about how you should respect her history and stop infantilizing her when she actually could have freed you from serving Ciderac at any moment. Would you forgive her? Yes or yes? And in story, do you believe Piotr has completely forgiven her? Also needed to get a bit out about my favorite underrated Ileana pairing, Ileana and Sean. After Ileana manipulated the hell out of Sean during Wells' Great New Mutants run, then Karma got back at her during Rosenberg's Great Dead Souls mini, which one of them should make up a complicated plan to manipulate the other next? But seriously, what do you and Leah think about their iconically messy relationship? Thanks, Pedro. Yes, I would forgive her. Yes, I think her brother has forgiven her. 
And yes, I, I love the uh, like dynamism between her and Karma and how they're kind of like two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Both vastly different, but the the space that they take up, especially in, in you know, earlier New Mutants, it's immense. Like they hold so much power um, each on their own. And that's why I love kind of their back and forth over time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a Sean and Danny person myself. I have been for decades, so I'm not the person to ask about Sean and Ilyana. But, you know, here's the thing about Claremont Dames. If you had any Claremont woman kiss another Claremont woman, I would tell you that's a great choice. (laughs) Yeah. Really, that is a choose your own adventure. But I really did like the dynamic between Ilyana and Sean recently at the Hellfire Gala. I thought that was cute. I like the idea of them as like, we're friends, but we're not like that close because we don't really super trust each other. But that's fine because we know that like if I was in trouble, you would be there. I like that karma kind of keeps her at arm's length because I think that it creates an interesting contrast to both of their relationship with Danny, actually. Yeah, it's it's an interesting tension. Yeah, I like it. And I would like to see them interact more. But, you know, the cast Vita has on that book is really, really strong. And I, I'm just excited to see whatever's coming next. Brian Houston writes, Hello, Connor and Leah. First, I wanted to provide an update. On X-Men Monday a while back, I submitted a question for Leah where I referred to Dakin as the worst, just the absolute worst. Well, Leah really reinvigorated the character, and I now look forward to him appearing in comics I buy. Before X-Factor, my favorite moment for him was when he got drowned. So basically, good job, Leah. Now, on to my question. One of Ilyana's most underrated traits in her Claremont years anyway was her sense of humor. With Limbo apparently not a major concern right now, I think Ilyana could become a major prankster on Krakoa. Who should she prank and what would she do? Alternate question, if that's not good enough. If Ilyana was going to date a non-mutant, who would it be and can it be Elsa Bloodstone? Anyway, great job on the what if issue and good luck with the Sapna questions. Brian, would you believe we didn't get any Sapna questions? I'm thrilled because I didn't want to reread that arc because the Inhumans versus X-Men era, I have like stress. I don't want to go back. PTSD. (laughs) I truly have like post-traumatic terrigenous stress and I don't want to go there. But Ilyana and Elsa Bloodstone at the very least should be pals. I'm very excited for Teenie's Bloodstone one-shot. Yeah, I think that they would get along really well. I think they would vibe. They're very similar characters. Just a bad father figure situation going on. Also filthy vocabulary. Just like foul-mouthed sailor women. Yeah. I still think that like Bloodstone is dying to be a Disney Plus series. And I don't know why that has not happened yet. It feels so like, just do it. Do it, Disney. (laughs) Sophie Turner is right there. (laughs) You could have Sophie Turner play like the raunchy self she is in her Instagram stories. Right. But a Bloodstone series is better served as like an HBO Max kind of series rather well, than right, Disney Plus. Well, right, but we're we're unfortunately unfortunately Warner Brothers owns <laughs> HBO, so we're not. You know, I know, I know. I don't disagree. But as for who she could prank, I would love to see her pranking Scott because I feel like he would. She find would it absolutely funny. prank Scott, and she would also be comfortable pranking Scott. Right, because like she, she knows it would be that, cool. Like, they could do yeah, that with each other. Yeah. They're cool like that, and also that he needs to loosen up and needs to have a laugh, and she's gonna force that on him whether he wants to or not. Yeah, and I think like she and Rachel could get into shenanigans together pranking Scott, which would also yeah. be fun. 
Rachel, not Rachel Summers, but a different Rachel, writes, Hi, Connor. Rachel here. Big fan of the podcast. This is my first time sending in an email, so I hope it's not too clunky. As a lesbian and Ileana Rasputina stan, I knew I had to write in a question for her episode, especially when I heard your guest is Leah Williams, author of one of my all-time favorite comic issues, What If Magic? My question is about costumes. Ileana's wearing the same costume since the Bendis era, the one with the hot pants, and I personally would love to see an updated look. If given the opportunity, what sort of new costume would you design for Ileana? What design elements do you think are essential to the character? And what would you change from the current look? Thank you, as always, for the amazing content. Listening to the podcast and chatting in the server always brightens my day. I'm so grateful to you, Connor, for creating such an awesome community space. Sincerely, Rachel. I think that the key with Ilyana design-wise is two specific elements. One, you need a horn element of some kind, and I like the little, you know, Jack Kirby-looking horns that she has now. I also think that she needs an asymmetrical design element. I like that this costume does have like the one shoulder and arm that's like more gauntleted to reference that old silhouette. To me, that's, it's like, there are so many blondes, like white blonde women in Marvel comics that you really need the asymmetrical armor thing and the bangs for me to go like, that's Ilyana. Yeah. For me, it's the straight blonde bangs and wearing all black because that is not like a normal thing for Marvel blondes to to be wearing or for their hair to be styled. Yeah. Like even if her her costume with like the boob cut out and the hot pants or whatever is interpreted as being catered to the male gaze or whatever, the head thingies, the giant ass sword, the all black and the straight bangs, that is not catered to the male gaze. That is not something that men find attractive. <laughs> I like her in silver. I've said that, but I do think that her wearing all black is distinctive. And I do think that part of what's helped her break out is giving her an outfit that is not the training uniform in the yellow and black. Yeah. So I would want to keep her looking visually distinct. I mean, I'd love to see them all get a more like individual costume, all of those New Mutants characters. But I also like in the current run of New Mutants how all of them are wearing sort of a uniform look, except for her because she's just not she doesn't feel like it. Yeah. That is characterizing of her also by sort of implication. But yeah, I mean, I... Oh, we got a very similar question from Christopher Foken. Connor, adore you. Bless this pod. Cannot gush enough. Leah, your sublime X Factor is so precious to me. My husband and I wanted to meet you at C2E2 just as the pandemic swept in, but your table was so active we chickened out. Wanted to say again, big fan. I write to you both today to discuss aesthetics. What is your definitive or ideal look for Mr. Asbutina? Are we into the WWE meets Fredericks of Hollywood? I'm such a bad girl. Botula design. <laughs> Do we long for the 80s graduation sorceress cosplay hooded number with the domino mask? Is her dead souls I cut my own bags, sir? of Buffy's amends episode. But look, we long to see the five resurrect. Speaking of hair, let's talk volume. Blevins' full body blowout. Long, slim, and sleek. Anya Taylor-Joy. What direction would you like to see Ileana's aesthetic take next? P.S. I'm so pleased the boob window's been axed. Sorry if that was your jam. Much love, Christopher. I think the boob window's like in and out. She has like a couple different tops and she rotates them, which I love for her. Yeah, sometimes like she sometimes needs a little more The girls need to breathe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, under boob sweat, it's real. Like Emma, she is a character where I never look at her wearing a skimpy outfit and think it's like inappropriate because it feels so character driven with her. But the hot pants to me are a little much. I wouldn't mind connecting the pants and the boots. I actually really like that graduation costume with the red cloak, but I just love a cloak moment. Like my favorite Betsy look is the Outback armor with the big hooded cloak. So I think I may just be like, cloak happy more so Just than really anything else cloaks. yeah i like a gal in a in a mysterious cloak 
The important thing for Ileana aesthetically is to emphasize what sets her apart as a character. And what sets her apart as a character is that she is not a good girl in that way. She's a hot goth babe. Like yeah. that's just like lean into it. Do that. Yeah. Yeah. Sam Guido writes, hello, Connor and Leah. Leah, I love your X-Men comics so much. X-Factor and Trial Magneto are some of my favorite books from the current X-Line. I also thought your Extremist mini from Age of X-Men was fantastic. It was so exciting to see Richter, Iceman, and Northstar on panel together, and I love the way you characterized Betsy. I'm so excited to hear you and Connor talk about Magic, who's my absolute favorite New Mutants character. My question, though, is actually about the original Excalibur run. I recently learned that Excalibur is your favorite of the classic X-Men books, Leah. Excalibur is also my fave, but it is an absolutely wild book, even for Claremont. It's incredibly queer and kinky, even compared to the other X-Men comics at the time. How do you think that run has influenced your writing on the X-Line? Has it influenced your perspective on the X-Men as a whole? Love the Discord and the pod. I'm looking forward to hearing both of your thoughts on my favorite X-Men sword lesbian, Sam. I think it's really obvious how it's um, impacted my writing. My my books are also queer and kinky. And yeah, it's like, you, it's, you know. It, it's really obvious. And you you brought up earlier that I'm you thought that I would be the most Claremontian writer of the current yeah, roster. I and I think that's really interesting because it's so very much in my head, Claremont. I'm I'm not actively trying to emulate him or anything, obviously. You're not aping it. I don't think it feels derivative. I just feel like it's a similar sensibility. Right. I'm, I'm trying to write my own stories, but there's still sort of like a subconscious input, I think, particularly through internal monologues, like seeing inside characters' mm -hmm. heads. I do it mostly through captions or unless it's Aurora thought bubbles, because that's like a whole thing with her and her DID, the different thought bubbles. I think that Excalibur, that original run, which totally is my favorite comic run, is visible in X Factor in the sense of whimsy. The way the characters relate to each other around the right. boneyard is very like right. Megan and Rachel and Kitty and Kurt yakking in the lighthouse. In the and lighthouse, Brian being yeah. like, why is this happening? And North Star is kind of like, why is yeah. this happening? Yeah. Like there's a little bit of that, yeah, which is the domestic feeling that I think And, and it's something has. that I, I loved about Excalibur that mm -hmm. um, found family, but like a chaotic and queer found family is what I really, one of the things that I really value about Excalibur. Same. More than even the X-Men, which is always about like a group of misfits in a found family, Excalibur was very much like, we just threw these five super random characters in a box and we're going to see what happens, you know? Yeah, it's, it's very much off the beaten path and it's supposed to be. Yeah. Last question is from Krakoa Welcomes, friend of the pod, official Cerebro videographer. The TikTok is exploding basically right now, which is crazy to me because I still don't understand how TikTok works. Krakoa manages this TikTok for me because they volunteered and they make these little videos with audio from the pod. And apparently Gen Z loves Candy Southern, which, you know, I love that for us and for me and for them. But Krakoa asks, is Magic's name spelled that way because she didn't do much book learning in Limbo? She and Sabretooth might not even know they're spelling their names wrong and everyone would be too afraid to correct them. At least Strife's from a weird future where all the names are spelled wrong. No wonder Havoc struggled with his PhD. Because <laughs> Havoc is, of course, also spelled wrong. Or is it Xavier's fault for never giving an actual education? This seems systemic. Discuss. You did seem to have thoughts on Xavier's bentering of these characters. I fucking hate Xavier. Um, it's spelled with a K because she's Russian. 
There you go. I, I don't know that for certain. That's just what I think. I mean, Chris Claremont loves a weird K or Y. He's just like big into that. So I think that a lot of that is actually following on Havoc, which wasn't him. But what's funny about, I mean, I loved the gag in Ten of Swords where she spells it with a K and gets it <laughs> wrong. And I do think that, you know, she is very well read because she read every book in Belasco's library, but Belasco's books are presumably written in like demonic tongues that are not English, right? Or in Italian or wherever it is he's from originally. So there's that. And then also Xavier just like taught her English by downloading it directly into her brain. And I don't think he gave her like strunk and white. You know what I mean? Like, I think it yeah. was pretty basic stuff. And then he certainly never taught a class. And then he fucked off to space to be with his bird girlfriend for like, a decade. And I don't think Magneto thought about it because she was speaking perfectly fine English. And English is like Magneto's fourth language anyway. So yeah. he probably wasn't going to judge her if her conjugation of something was wrong. <laughs> so I think it's just never come up. I mean, it would be very funny. Karma has a library science degree. It would be very funny to see like Karma and Ilyana do like a hooked on phonics kind of moment together where she's just <laughs> like, Yana, where you're like teaching the kids and you keep writing on the chalkboard. It's just like, that is not how you spell sorcery <laughs> at all. We need to well, get she's also this. like never, you know, really needed to write out a lot of these right. concepts. The magic's pretty intrinsic to her. It's intrinsic to her. And also she's a woman of action. Like her... Her teaching style is hands-on. It's mm -hmm. kinesthetic. And she's never needed to write out a lesson plan or anything. No. <laughs> well, that wraps up our question segment. Leah, thank you so much for being my guest. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Ilyana before we start to wrap? I love Ilyana to my core. And I'm so grateful for all of the questions and all of the positive comments about what if magic that really, really means a lot to me because I have had empty nest syndrome for Ileana ever since turning in that <laughs> script. Like she, she is my baby now. She is my daughter and I miss her every single day and I worry about her well-being. And it makes me so happy to hear all the love for her and all of the support and like, you know, hype for her character. She's the best. Well, I appreciate that story a lot as someone who has loved that character since I was a kid. And I am glad that it's resonated with so many people. And I hope you get an opportunity to do something fun with her again in the future. For now, why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online? I imagine they already do if they're listening to this podcast. But I, <laughs> you know, and plug anything you want to plug. Trial of Magneto 3 just came out. I'm Handaxe with an E on Instagram and I am X-Men Comics on TikTok. I've heard your TikTok is great. I'm still scared of TikTok, but I feel like I need to learn because now I have one and I need to like actually log into it at some point. But, you know new things. I'm very, I'm, I'm feeling very old. I feel like Instagram was like the last new one that I really understood. <laughs> and then Snapchat, I was like, why would you want messages that disappear? And you know, <laughs> but that's my obsessive compulsive disorder talking. I want like screenshots of everything. I can't screenshot a Snapchat. I mean, you can, it's just going to tell the other person. They'll that you tell the person. Yeah. That's the whole point. <laughs> 
You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes as well as links to the Discord server, the merch store, and the Patreon at CerebroCast.com. Please join the conversation, but don't bring any bad vibes. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier at Patreon.com slash CerebroCast, you can get an ad-free version of every episode as they go up and two bonus episodes every month. Thank you so much for all your support. You can email Cerebro at CerebroCast at gmail.com with your questions. As was announced in the Siren episode, the November block after this episode on Magic is Dr. Khaled Nas on Dust, Dr. Stephanie Burt on Warlock, my father, James Goldsmith on Sauron, and Zach Rabaroff on Dr. Valerie Cooper. If you have questions about any of those characters, please feel free to write in. It's going to be a fun month. It's a bunch of wacky off-the-beaten-path choices, and I'm excited to dig into them with all of you Thank you, as always, for listening. Your support means the world to me, and I adore the community that has blossomed around this podcast. It's not about me. It's about all of you, and I appreciate everything that you do. So until next time, everybody, thank you for listening, and bye. Bye. Thanks for having me. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. 